Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The college basketball world has lost a pioneering coach, John Cheney. He died on Friday at the age of 89. Cheney was born in Jacksonville, Florida, but he was an adopted son of Philadelphia, where he spent his life coaching basketball, including 24 years at Temple University. And he was, in the words of Tyler Tynes, an avatar of Black resilience, achievement, and daring conviction. Tynes is a staff writer for The Ringer and joins us now. Welcome. How you doing? Good. You know, your piece is titled The Gospel of John Cheney. What exactly was John Cheney's gospel, in your view? Well, you know, to me, as somebody who grew up on the north side of Philly uh, in the 90s, going into the early 2000s, you know, the gospel of John Cheney was really the book that all Philadelphians read by, you know, we are a small city with a brash, big heart and, a, a, you know, as some people would describe it, a blue collar town. And somebody like John Cheney, a son of Jacksonville, adopted by the city and be- becoming the best player in the public school leagues in the 50s when he didn't have an opportunity to go to the NBA as an All-American you think of a guy who just adopted our style immediately and brought it to the national forefront. Those yeah. Temple teams were tough. They were ready to punch you in the mouth. They played a strong <laughs> matchup zone. Cheney was an avatar for the city. He was us. You know, he, he, he was adopted by our city, but he became one of us overnight. And through 24 years at Temple University, he had folks thinking it was an HBCU. Yeah, like you write in your piece, quote, For what felt like my entire life, there was no better brawler on behalf of the black athlete than Cheney. He made the entire country believe in the excellence of black boys forgotten by major universities, industries, cities, and the rest of the world. I mean, being someone from North Philadelphia, tell us, like, what did Coach Cheney mean to the black boys of Philly? You know, he was one of us, a public league superstar, a guy who went to an HBCU, came back, made Cheney University, a Division II, and another HBCU outside of Philly into a national champion. And so not only was he somebody who came in, adopted our, 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 our swag, adopted who we were as a persona, as a city, but then he started to transform the mechanisms that were truly near and dear to North Philadelphia. And you didn't back away from that moment. You put your hands on the community. You gave food out to people who needed it. You helped people who didn't have homes. He was just genuinely a nice guy, a warm spirit, and he loved hard. For a lot of those kids like Aaron McKee, Mark Macon, Chris Clark, uh, guys like that, he took them in. He made them ball players. They ended up, you know, Aaron McKee, of course, ended up going to the NBA. And now he is the head coach of Temple University's basketball uh-huh. program. And so it's, it's, it's a full life cycle. And I'm just happy Coach Cheney was able to see, as he referred to them, one of his sons take over and help continue to build the legacy he set forward. Well, part of Cheney's passion was uh, also the fact that he could be confrontational. Like there was this time he charged at the coach of an opposing team, John Calipari, shouting, I'll kill you. Can you talk about that side of Cheney? Cheney loved hard, man, right? John Cheney did that to John Calipari because John Cheney thought John Calipari was trying to cheat the game. 
Calipari was exiting the University of Massachusetts's uh, locker room afterwards after speaking with the refs. And Cheney said, man, I get, I just got blasted down in West Virginia for talking to the refs the wrong way. You've got a good team. You don't need to do stuff like this. Calipari tells him he didn't understand. And Cheney said, no, I'm going to make you understand. And then he charged, then he charged that lector. <laughs> he charged that lector, Aaron McKee and the boys were making sure they're keeping him off. Him. And so that's Cheney. And moments like that have happened frequently. And I think for the white press that did not appreciate John Cheney and did not like John Cheney and thought he showed grotesque versions of power, they showed this as the true side of who Cheney was. But in reality, in Philadelphia, when the white press would write horrible things about Cheney, he invited them to his 4.30, 30 a.m. practices in North Philly at McGonagall Hall so they could get a sneak peek into a national power. No one speaks about those moments of John Cheney, but the city knows it well. Tyler Tynes is a staff writer for The Ringer. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and feelings with us today. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. And since the earliest days of the pandemic, as you know, black and Latino people in New York City have died from COVID-19 at twice the rate of white New Yorkers. Now, as vaccines become available, those communities that have been hit the hardest are not getting prioritized in a rollout system that seems to be giving an advantage to groups that skew whiter and wealthier. According to city data released over the weekend, Three white residents receive a COVID-19 vaccine for every black or Latino person in the city. Some more specifics. White people make up 32 percent of the city's population, but have received 48 percent of vaccine doses. While Latino residents make up 29 percent of New York City residents, they comprise only 15 percent of vaccine takers. The black community accounts for a quarter of the city, but their vaccination rate is merely 11 percent. The data is incomplete because a large portion of non-city-run vaccination sites have failed to report vaccinations by race, but public health experts say that this data that we have shows a definite and concerning trend that is being repeated in much of the country. With me now is City Council Member Mark Levine. He chairs the Council's Health Committee and is calling on the city to make specific changes to its vaccine rollout. And we also have Dr. Uche Blackstock. She, as some of you know from her appearances on this show and elsewhere, is an emergency medicine physician, founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity, and a Yahoo News medical contributor. She has suggestions for the Biden-Harris administration to fix inequities in the distribution system at the national level. Welcome back to WNYC, both of you. Hi, good morning. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much, Brian. And council member, for listeners who did not hear the mayor's press conference on this over the weekend, can you further elaborate on the data that was released? I know you and others have been calling for its release for weeks. Well, we we have an incomplete picture, Brian. I want to stress that. We only got a piece of the data which illuminates inequality, but it does offer race and ethnicity breakdowns, and you ran through them. White New Yorkers are getting vaccinated at triple the rate of African-American and Latino New Yorkers. Uh, Really, that's a discrepancy that's even greater than some of the other COVID inequality that we've been seeing in this crisis. But we're still lacking something really fundamental. We have no zip code level data, which could compare the Upper East Side to the South Bronx. Um, Another critical view of inequality. It's really uh, perplexing that it hasn't been released yet because the data, the data is there. The city collects addresses on everyone it vaccinates. So we're still fighting for more transparency. But it's, it's not too soon 
to get beyond hand-wringing and point to solutions. We need to fix this. We need a new web registration system that stops blocking out people who don't have tech savvy or English language skills. We need to stop of crowding out people in vaccination sites in low-income neighborhoods who are competing against people, generally white, middle, and upper-income people from all over the region. We can do that by having prioritization and scheduling for local neighborhoods at their vaccine site. We need to change eligibility in a way that fixes the error of omitting so many critical groups like people who deliver food, people who work in taxis, in restaurants, nail salons, people who are, who are incarcerated. And, and finally, Brian, we have to get out of city facilities and go door to door. We have to be going door to door to vaccinate. We actually can deliver the vaccine door to door for people who are homebound. Other states are doing this. And also simply to make appointments for people who are not able to get onto a home computer. Let's go door to door with, with iPads and sign people up. This problem can be addressed and we need to not just talk about it. We need serious action to reboot our equity strategy for vaccination. And Dr. Blackstock, you recently wrote a piece in the Washington Post about this topic and you wrote, while there is urgency to vaccinate quickly, it cannot and must not be done at a cost to equity. And I think that obviously is the guiding tension of this issue. Public officials want to get the vaccine into as many arms as possible and targeting specific demographics they might see as slowing it down because it would take more time to organize. Can both things be done at the same time, in your opinion? Yes. No, Brian, I, I feel strongly that both things can be done and that we should not sacrifice equity um, for a more speedy rollout. I mean, the fact is, is that and, and my sister and I, um, who, who, we wrote the piece together. We mentioned this, that it is uh, we, almost our moral obligation uh, to ensure that we're addressing these uh, inequities head on. Uh, and, I, and I think it's interesting just to step back to, to see how these inequities were created. They were created by systemic racism through practices and policies. And so we are going to need to be very intentional in, in the rollout in terms of mitigating these inequities. And my sister and I, we laid it out um, in the piece. We strongly feel that you know, Black Americans because of the history of systemic racism in this country. I mean, just we can just talk about redlining alone, the GI Bill. There were federal policies that have disadvantaged Black Americans, leading to disinvestment in our communities that has directly impacted health. When you look at the neighborhoods current day here in New York City with the worst health outcomes, those were the redlined areas. So it is the city's moral obligation really to to focus on prioritizing uh, black communities and other communities of color. And so it's not just about making sure that there are vaccination centers in these neighborhoods. It's ensuring that there is accessibility because everyone, especially our homebound elders, cannot get to a vaccination center. So as Mark mentioned, we need to be going door to door. We need to use community health workers who are trained lay professionals either from the community or who know the community well to perform outreach, to go door to door with vaccines 
and we need the complete data. I mean, we have incomplete data that's already showing a trend. The same thing happened at the beginning of the pandemic when we were asking for the data for cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. We saw the trend in the beginning. We're seeing the trend now, and we have time to course correct. And let me give credit by name to your sister and co-author of that Washington Post piece, Dr. Oni Blackstock. Yes, thank you. You're Dr. Uche Blackstock. She's not been on the show. I guess we'll have to uh, uh, advance a little family equity (laughs) in the future and have her on. Uh, But Dr. Uche Blackstock and Dr. Oni Blackstock collaborating on this, calling Dr. Blackstock, calling Dr. Blackstock. How do we know which one's going to answer? But Council Member Levine... um, it wasn't supposed to be like this. I mean, knowing all these underlying systemic racism factors like housing, redlining, you know, segregating housing, all these things that Dr. Blackstock was just talking about that contributed to the, to the starting point uh, and so many other things than that. Mayor de Blasio came on this show early on as the vaccine was about to be rolled out and many other places, and said, we're going to prioritize 27 zip codes within New York City. And that's how we're going to make sure that the people who've been getting the disease at disproportionate rates are getting the vaccine at those same rates. And yet it didn't happen. So what went wrong? Look, Dr. Uche, uh, uh, Dr. Blackstock and I wrote uh, an op-ed in Gotham Gazette uh, in early December that warned of exactly this scenario and it's played out as we feared i think maybe she would agree even worse than we feared and uh i'm not sure what prioritization in those 27 zip codes has looked like right now but it certainly is not helping people get an appointment i mean you go to a vaccine site a city-run vaccine site in the south bronx and most of the people there are going to be white and middle and upper income And they're coming from, Brian, in some cases, not just all over the city, but all over the region. Uh, And and I don't blame anyone who's trying to get themselves vaccinated and willing to travel a couple of hours. But the fact is, we're crowding out local neighborhoods. And, you know, the armory, which came in for a lot of criticism. That's the Washington Heights Armory on 169th Street in Manhattan. Uh Came in for a lot of criticism in its early days because... The same thing was happening there. It was basically dominated by people coming from all over the region, the vast majority of which were white. And so they made a change. They are reserving 60% of their appointment slots for people from the zip codes in Washington Heights, Inwood, Harlem, and the South Bronx. And, and now the, they're getting a much more representative group of people vaccinating. But the city's not doing that. The, the state sites aren't doing that. Hmm. And so I'm not sure what prioritization means as long as you're still crowding out local people. But this is the kind of thing that that a hospital is doing now. The city can and should do it as well. And to that point, another stat that jumped out to people from over the weekend and the mayor's release of these numbers, New York City has vaccinated more non-residents than it has vaccinated black, Latino and Native American people who live in the five boroughs combined. And so that's a real statistical eye popper on people driving in from outside the city or however they get there, uh, getting their shots at city sites. Listeners, and, and, will, can, can I just, can I just well, I go wanted ahead. to say something about that, that very quick. This is, this is an underappreciated trend 
a quarter of the people we're vaccinating in New York City do not live here. Now, some of them are essential workers who work in the city, and absolutely, we should vaccinate them. A significant number, I think, need to be considered vaccine tourists. They're coming here because they get an appointment slot. And uh, that, that's okay, but we are, we get, we get dosage, we get supplies of dosages from the federal government based on our population, and we're getting very little. We're getting no extra dosage for the huge number of people who we're vaccinating who don't live here. And so you think of a site like the Aqueduct, which is a mass vaccination site in Queens on the Long Island border, only accessible by car. Most people who are going there are almost certainly from Long Island. And every one of those doses is coming out of our stockpile. So it, it, it really is, it, it's crowding out uh, people locally. The federal government could fix this by giving us an allocation that accounts for everyone we're vaccinating who doesn't live here. Uh, it's something that, that I would like to see the, the Biden administration do. The list of things to do in Seattle is long. The U.S. vaccine rollout has only underscored the inequities seen throughout the pandemic. Communities of color are getting less access to the vaccine, even though these groups are far more likely to die from COVID. Many cities, many states are now trying to address this problem. Will Stone has this report on what they're doing in Seattle. When this hockey arena was chosen for a mass vaccination site, Leon Richardson knew they'd hear lots of languages in this neighborhood south of Seattle. Mandarin and Vietnamese, Korean, Spanish. Richardson works for Public Health Seattle King County. We really had to leverage our staff on site that's bilingual, which is just indicative of all the different cultures and populations that we're, we're reaching. It's one of two mass vaccination sites open this week with the goal of reaching some of Western Washington's most diverse communities. Dr. Mark Del Bacaro is with the health department. They have the highest infection rate, a disproportionate death rate, and disproportionately poor access to health care. So they put the vaccine site in this part of town to reduce barriers to getting the shot. Public health is also enlisting agencies like Neighborhood House, which serves thousands of low-income seniors in the Seattle area. My name is Mr. Fakir. I am care coordinator at Neighborhood House and originally from Ethiopia. Mustafakir manages the care for seniors like Haus Hadara, who initially struggled to navigate the sign-up process. But for myself, it was difficult to get the vaccine. I don't know where to go or where to get it. She was able to help Hadara get a shot at a nearby pop-up clinic. Janice Taguchi, executive director of Neighborhood House, says their clients were also given early access to sign up for the mass vaccine site. That would definitely be an example of what worked. More of that would be great. She says doses should go directly to primary care doctors in non-white communities. And the state needs a centralized waiting list so when vaccine is available, people aren't overlooked. Before we just go to the next round, which is going to be kind of a mad dash, that we ensure that there is equity and that those vulnerable populations have access. The data from the Seattle area does show that overall communities of color are getting vaccinated at lower rates than whites. Public Health Director Patty Hayes says in part that reflects the lack of diversity in the healthcare workforce, the first group to get vaccinated. But early data from their mass vaccine sites show promise. They're twice as effective at getting black residents vaccinated. I can look at our data and I'm really pleased with where it's going right now. We're being transparent as to where we need to uh, look and emphasize. So we always can do better. 
At least Seattle has this data. The CDC says for about half of Americans who've been vaccinated, there is no race and ethnicity data. What does exist show just about 5% of doses have gone to black Americans and around 11% to Latinos. If we could at least just get the data, that gives us a starting point. Dr. Joya Creer-Perry is with the We Must Count Coalition, which has pushed for race and ethnicity data since the start of the pandemic. Moving around blindly, trying to make decisions around where to send vaccines without having information, that's what kills communities who are not centered. Perry says unless there's pressure on states to collect this information, it won't happen. The Biden administration is now calling on states to get more consistent data. Dr. Helene Gale led a National Academies of Medicine committee on vaccine equity. Sometimes in the rush to get as many people vaccinated, we're not thinking about making sure that we're focusing on the people who are at greatest risk. But Gail says there's still plenty of time for a coordinated national strategy to turn this around. For NPR News, I'm Will Stone. I'm going, going back, back to Cali, Cali. We've been closely following the rollout across California since the first doses were delivered in December. Now, back then, Governor Gavin Newsom promised to keep equity in mind when getting people vaccinated. That way, communities who were at the highest risk of getting and dying from COVID when they would get prioritized. But that does not seem to be happening. The vaccine rollout remains slow, and reports are that people with more resources have been getting doses, even if they're not supposed to be eligible yet. Now, the state is switching almost entirely to an age-based eligibility system, prioritizing people 65 and older. It's a group the Centers for Disease Control says is at a higher risk of hospitalization or death from the virus than others, but still, California is struggling to balance speed with equity. Barbara Fader Ostrove has been covering this. She's a contributing writer for Cal Matters covering the pandemic. Now, Barbara, just for starters, what was the rationale for making people 65 and older the priority? Basically, the state realized that the system it was trying to develop was really cumbersome and difficult to enforce. It had a number of essential jobs. It was trying to prioritize equity by allocating vaccine to certain communities. And it was very, very hard for people to understand. So under pressure to speed up vaccinations and get more shots in arms, the state decided to uh, go by federal guidelines and and open up eligibility to anybody 65 and older. And when that happened, there was a lot of pushback. What's been the biggest pushback against that? I think primarily from the disability community, they were not uh, included in the 65 and over group, although they have been in other states. Uh, Also, people with chronic medical conditions, you might imagine someone with uh, COPD or heart disease or uh, severe asthma or diabetes, all of whom have uh, increased risk if they get COVID um, being not included because they might be 63 or 64. So uh, that community is lobbying hard uh, to be included, and it remains to be seen whether that will happen. And now there's a debate over whether we should get just as many people inoculated as fast as possible or make sure those who need it the most get it first. Uh, Barbara, why was the state's eligibility proposal so complicated to figure out? 
because the state was trying to balance a whole bunch of competing objectives. So you've got speed, getting as many doses in arms as possible. Then you have uh, the fact that throughout the pandemic, certain communities have just been much harder hit than others. So for example, uh, the death rate for Latinos in this state is 20% higher than statewide. Uh, People in low-income communities, they're almost 40% higher to get infected, uh, often because they have essential jobs that put them on the front line of interacting with the public. Barbara, you mentioned how the state was trying their best to at least uh, appease as many different competing interests here as possible. And, And obviously, it's very, very difficult in the middle of a pandemic. But has this back and forth over who gets vaccinated when, did that contribute at all to the slow rollout? Do we know if, if that played a played a role or a factor? There are many factors in um, the slowness of the rollout, uh, especially the response from the federal government at the time. Um, things are improving now so that um, counties and uh, large medical providers get a better sense of how much vaccine they'll be allocated so they can plan ahead for mass vaccination clinics and where to send their vaccine. At the beginning, they were only getting about a week's notice, which, as you can imagine, really makes it very difficult to do any planning. Now the goal is about three weeks of uh, doses uh, in advance so they'll know how much they're getting. So, Barbara, I think maybe a, a bigger question then is, would vaccinating people as fast as possible, uh, directly or indirectly, benefit the most people? I mean, what's your general sense from those you've talked to? There's a real debate in the public health community about this. There are some people who argue that just because we have these new, more infectious uh, variants coming online, that we need to get vaccine into as many arms as possible. And the competing viewpoint is that we really need to go where the case rates are the highest to stop the spread. You know, one of the biggest concerns leading up to the vaccination rollout was about guarding against anyone jumping ahead in line or using um, their, their privilege or wealth to get the vaccine before their schedule to how much of that has been happening? A good amount. Uh, there's some really crazy stories out there. Down in uh, the desert area in Rancho Mirage, you saw uh, one hospital offering the vaccine early to its donors before opening up vaccination clinics to the general public. We've even seen reports of Hollywood executives just you know, flying their private jets out to Florida, wow. uh, where the vaccine criteria is looser. And you know, these are really troubling examples. I think it was expected because this kind of thing happens all the time. I think the state was trying really hard to guard against this. And I think, you know, people are doing the best they can. But if you've got speed as a factor and as a driving imperative, you're going to have a really hard time screening everybody to the extent that nobody can jump the line. We're talking to contributing writer Barbara Fader-Ostrove covering the pandemic for Cal Matters. Over the last few months, uh, Barbara, what's been the argument to prioritize equity? And and I guess, how would that be figured out? Because, yeah, it's it's a very difficult, uh, touchy thing, considering that if this is life and death we're talking about. This isn't just some other policy. Sure. I mean, it's been hard to overstate the devastation in some communities. Uh, In some communities uh, in Los Angeles, for example, the case rates are five times higher uh, than those in other parts of the city, even more. Um, 
the death rates are far higher for black and brown people than they are for the rest of California as a whole. Equity means getting the vaccine to the communities where it is needed most. The state had had a plan to allocate vaccine to communities that place low on a health index. Um, but now they're looking at only reserving about 20% of the state's doses for that purpose and then uh, dev devoting the rest to people 65 and older and the you know, few essential worker groups that have been designated as priority for now. Now, do you expect the state to make any changes to the vaccination timeline for people with disabilities and why might they do this? I think it, things will open up as more vaccine comes online. You know, new vaccines will be coming online in the coming months. Uh, we will get a bigger supply. So I would expect to see an easing. And then the state will also uh, perhaps include people with disabilities and chronic medical conditions, uh, perhaps with the group that's maybe 50 to 64, which is expected to be the next group in line. Considering the concerns of all of these groups that are worried about uh, the state maybe not prioritizing the most vulnerable populations anymore, why hasn't the state released uh, demographic data on those who have been vaccinated? I think that's coming. We've been asking for it in the media for sure. Uh, I'm sure uh, public health folks would like to see it too. The state did release that type of information for testing and it revealed you know, grave disparities in who was getting testing uh, along the same lines as what we're seeing now. I think when the state releases demographic data, just as in certain counties where we've already seen that data and across the nation, we will see disparities with lower income people and black and brown people being vaccinated at lower rates. Contributing writer Barbara Fader Ostrov is covering the pandemic for Cal Matters. Her piece is titled Sacrificing Equity for Speed. California's COVID vaccine rollout stirs concern. Barbara, thank you very much. Thank you. An NPR analysis looked at COVID-19 vaccination sites in several large cities across the southern United States and found that those sites are more likely to be located in neighborhoods that have a higher percentage of white residents than the median neighborhood in the county. Now, what that means is that it's harder for many black and Hispanic people to find a place to get vaccinated than it is for white people. We're going to talk more about these findings with the team that did the reporting. Ashley Lopez is a reporter with member station KUT in Austin, Texas. Shalina Chutlani is with member station WWNO in New Orleans. She's the healthcare reporter for the NPR Gulf States Newsroom. And Sean McMinn is a data editor at NPR. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Hey. Sean, I want to begin with you. You went looking for trends that were visible in the early stages of the vaccine rollout. And what trends did you find? 
That's right. We are in the early stages. It is just getting off the ground. But we wanted to know where vaccination sites are located. So we went to all the states where we could find the addresses of vaccination sites. There were about 15 of these that had them online. My colleagues and I looked at the percentage of non-Hispanic white residents in the census tracts of those states. It's basically a neighborhood. Then we mapped where the vaccine sites were in those census tracts. We identified counties where there were more vaccine sites in places that had a higher percentage of white residents. So when we say it's a whiter neighborhood, what we really mean is that it's one that has a higher percentage of white residents compared to the county's median census tract. Now, we saw this happening over and over again in the Gulf Coast and in Texas. So I got in touch with Shalina and Ashley to see if what they saw on the ground was matching what we saw in the data. Now, Shalina, you have been looking all across the South. Tell me about some of the specific places you looked and what you found. So I looked into three states specifically, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And one of the places I saw the most disparity was in Baton Rouge in Louisiana. We looked into all of the vaccination sites that were there, and 19 out of 25 are located in the whiter and wealthier neighborhoods. That's also where most medical facilities are. So when I went to the northern part of the parish, which is a predominantly black and lower income community, the seniors I interviewed there said there weren't many convenient places for them to get vaccinated. These disparities in healthcare access have existed for a long time in many of the cities I looked at. I saw a similar issue next door in Jackson, Mississippi. There's only one vaccination site in Hines County, which is over 70% black. But that site is located in the metropolitan downtown Jackson area, which is where most medical centers are located. It's a predominantly white area, and it's a 30-minute drive away from the more rural part of the county where more black residents live. Okay. And then, Ashley, you also covering a massive area, which is the state of (laughs) Texas. Tell me about what you found in Texas. Yeah, we have the same structural problems here in Texas. For example, I live in Austin, and here advocates have been concerned that the wealthier and whiter parts of town, which are on the west side, have more vaccine sites because they have more pharmacies and medical practices. I also looked right outside of Austin. East of us, there's this small rural county called Bastrop County. And in that county, almost all the vaccine providers are in the main city, which is also called Bastrop. Basically, there's one cluster of providers there along the main highway, and then hardly any other sites in the county. And this affects an immigrant community that's a 30-minute drive from the city of Bastrop. People there are afraid of driving into the city for basically anything. They've had run-ins with local law enforcement over small things in the past that have resulted in deportations, which has really scared the community. So placement of vaccine sites really, really matters there. So, Sean, Shalina and Ashley were looking in the southern part of the United States. Is what's going on there happening in the rest of the country? Unfortunately, there's no way to know for sure. The CDC is collecting data on where the vaccine doses are being distributed, but they have so far decided not to release that to the public. But what we do have an idea of is where the existing health infrastructure is. Think about places like clinics and hospitals. And a group of researchers at the West Health Policy Center and the University of Pittsburgh found that in hundreds of counties across the country, Black Americans were more likely than white Americans to live far away. 10 miles in a rural area and one mile in an urban area from a potential vaccination center. A particularly critical question for public health then would be, are Black and Hispanic Americans not getting vaccinated because the vaccine sites are harder for them to reach? Shalina, what did you find when you looked at the numbers? 
Yeah. So in the places that I looked into, Black people are being vaccinated less than their share of the population. Take Mississippi, where as of Wednesday, only 17% of residents who got the shot were Black, even though they make up about 38% of the population. Now, some public health officials point to vaccine hesitancy, which is this fear of getting the vaccine. That is an issue that we're seeing pop up in the South, where there's a long history of institutional racism. But there's also this issue of access. You can look at a map and see that there are far fewer sites in areas with predominantly Black populations. Okay, so a cascade of problems. Ashley, who is getting the vaccine in Texas? It's hard to know what's going on because data is pretty spotty in Texas. If you look at the state's demographic data, about 45% of people who have been vaccinated are reported as an unknown race. It's actually the biggest category they have right now. And that's just Mm. not super helpful. And Noel, this is the case nationwide. The CDC put out a report this week saying that they don't know the race of about half the people who have been vaccinated in the United States. But they did say that among those they do know, Black Americans are being vaccinated at a lower rate. To give you an idea, roughly one out of every 20 people who have been vaccinated has been Black. If they were receiving vaccinations equally relative to their share of the population, it would be more than double that. Okay, so the CDC is aware of this, which makes me wonder, are there any commitments from public health officials to get vaccines into neighborhoods where people of color live? Yeah, I'm seeing a a commitment from federal and local leaders on this. In Texas, county health officials have said they are committed to getting vaccines to the hardest hit communities. And the Biden administration has said they want to make sure immigrants, regardless of legal status, have access to the vaccine. And FEMA is expected to create pop-up vaccination sites in underserved communities. Shalina, what do you see? Officials in Louisiana tell me that they're going to use National Guard teams to go into underserved areas to do community vaccination events. But a more common solution that I've been hearing is creating partnerships with nonprofits and health clinics that already have connections in the community. But of course, you know, doing those mass vaccination events depends on having enough vaccines. So that'll be even more important in the upcoming phases. Ashley, Shalina, and Sean, thank you so much for your reporting. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Noel. Ashley Lopez is with member station KUT in Austin. Shalina Chetlani is with the NPR Gulf States Newsroom. And Sean McMinn is a data editor at NPR. Why haven't you learned anything? The questions about when to reopen more schools for in-person classes remains front and center for millions of Americans. Data show about 42% of all students between kindergarten and high school are in virtual-only schooling right now. As we reported, there was more fuel for the debates around this today when CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky said there's growing evidence that schools can reopen safely. And she said that is even before all teachers can be vaccinated. Stephanie Sai has our conversation again tonight. Judy, teachers and school staff say they need enough protective gear and safety measures in place before they return to in-person school. They also want more access to the COVID vaccine. Only about half of states are specifically prioritizing teachers as an eligible group for vaccines right now, although teachers may still qualify because of their age or medical conditions. Last night, we heard from the head of the largest teachers union. Now for a different perspective, I'm joined by Christopher Morphew, dean of the School of 
Education at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Morphew, thank you so much for joining us on the NewsHour. There are K through 12 age students that have not been in in-person school since last March. How much learning has been lost? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me, Stephanie. I really appreciate being here. Uh, you know, we're starting to see um, some evidence around a learning loss, and it's and it looks pretty darn significant. Um, last June, a colleague and I, Josh Sharfstein here at Hopkins, wrote a um, piece in JAMA, and we were at that time talking about what we had and others were calling the the COVID slide, which was a which was our prediction about what would what would happen as a result of closing schools during the pandemic. And we were predicting something that looked like a, a nine to 10 month summer melt um, uh, in, in students. And the, the early findings we're seeing from studies are substantiating just that. Uh, we're seeing, um, we're seeing uh, 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 evidence right now of, of, of students falling behind. And most importantly, um, we're seeing lots of evidence of the students who are most at risk and who entered into the pandemic and entered into the school's closures uh, behind falling further and further behind. So we're seeing evidence and 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 data now that suggests we're looking at uh, students who were behind losing another nine to 11 months. Um, and these are students who entered into the pandemic, as I said, maybe one or two years already behind their peers in terms of learning. So it's those most at-risk students that were primarily concerned about here as, as a result of the closure. But we're seeing um, general agreement from teachers, parents, and students that remote learning is not as high quality as the learning that had been taking place beforehand. But the loss goes beyond academics, uh, doesn't it? Your website says that these same disadvantaged groups you're talking about, students of color, low-income families, have, quote, faced compounded threats to their physical, emotional, and educational well-being, that for them, the most is at stake. Yeah, what we're seeing now, I think um, one study I was just reading is des was described it as a collective trauma that uh, students are, are experiencing. Uh, you know, I have, I have two students in K-12 schools and I'm seeing some of the, the mental health effects that um, other parents are seeing. And again, we're starting to see from uh, descriptive studies and national polls that you know, 30% or more of parents are reporting significant mental health, uh, significant changes in mental health. Uh, so that's greatly concerning. Um, findings suggest that, um, as I said, students are, are experiencing this sort of collective trauma that is likely to have long-lasting impacts well past the pandemic. And one of the things that, that we're concerned about here um, uh, at, at Hopkins is looking at uh, the, the uh, cases of abuse that are going undiscovered as a result of schools being closed. Schools are a primary and essential piece of, uh, for, uh, for identifying evidence of abuse. And what we're really concerned about is that uh, the pandemic is very likely exacerbating this in communities and, and, and homes around the country, but students aren't in school, so we aren't seeing the effects of this um, in ways that counselors and teachers and school leaders have been trained to identify. So, so we're, we're concerned about that as well. So the priority, it sounds like, should be getting all kids back to in-person learning. And you now have the new head of the CDC saying that this can be done safely, even without all teachers getting vaccinated. But you have major unions in big districts disagreeing with that. What's the best path out of that impasse? I think it's realizing that vaccines are only one part of this. 
we know that um, we know a lot more about the virus. We know a lot more about uh, how to how to reopen schools safely than we did nine months ago. And we need to take all of that into consideration, even beyond vaccines. The federal government really needs to think innovatively and act big when it comes to reopening schools. And that means stepping in, making sure districts have the resources they need to provide PPE, to engage in the asymptomatic testing that we now have at, at hand. They need to think innovatively about summer to step in and to act to make sure that our children and particularly our at-risk children don't experience the kind of COVID slide and the nine to 10 months of summer melt that we were just talking about in terms of learning loss. The federal government really has an opportunity here for its rhetoric to, to, um, uh, to be matched by action. Christopher Morphew, uh, the Dean of the School of Education at Johns Hopkins. Thank you so much. Thanks, Stephanie. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. (laughs) The Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink, under, under Trump, on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in stage white supremacy. See, so I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. The Department of Homeland Security issued a public warning last week. It advised of possible acts by extremists emboldened by last month's attack on democracy at the Capitol. The U.S. said, quote, information suggests possible follow-up attacks on U.S. officials or facilities. So what really is the threat to Americans and their government? We asked people who've been inside and outside the government. My sense of that alert is that it was probably a long time coming. Until recently, Chris Krebs was inside DHS. He led a cybersecurity agency there. President Trump appointed Krebs to that job, then fired him for accurately saying last year's election was secure. The substance of the DHS warning did not surprise Krebs. Those issues have been well-known, well-established for a number of years. It's the first time, though, that I've seen it really distilled down so cleanly and clearly in a bulletin like that. Now that Trump is out of power, the DHS issued its warning based on events going back years. The advisory mentions a mass shooting in El Paso in 2019, blamed on a man who'd posted an anti-immigrant manifesto. It says extremists are motivated by election conspiracy theories, but also by pandemic conspiracy theories dating back many months. U.S. officials did not elaborate on what they're seeing now, but Robert Pape, an independent terrorism specialist, told us he does not like the signs. The bottom line is that we are on the beginnings of a problem that's likely to be with us not just for months, but for years. Pape has studied political violence for decades at the University of Chicago. Until last year, he mainly focused overseas on groups like al-Qaeda. But then, as disinformation spread about the pandemic, he says he felt he needed to shift focus. 
the sharpest rise of political violence in the world is happening in the United States. Pape wanted to know who might be at risk of committing political violence. So with a research team, he studied people already accused of doing it. They studied 193 of the people who've been arrested so far for last month's attack on the Capitol. Pape's team gathered suspects' names, arrest records, and public information about them. He found some Capitol attackers are linked with right-wing extremist groups like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. But most are not. Many are older people with good jobs. 27% are white-collar. That is, doctors, uh, attorneys, architects. Uh, this is so unusual, Steve, that in our past studies of the demographics of political violence, we don't even have categories for business owner and white collar. This wide range of attackers from states across the country suggests how deeply election falsehoods penetrated mainstream society. Many attackers said they felt the sitting president had told them to act, like these rioters confronting Capitol Police, as recorded by The New Yorker. We have all the ingredients to unfortunately see the possible acceleration of the growth of this movement. We see that there is a leader with demonstrated support for extra-legal activity. We see mass grievances perceived by large masses of people. We also now see a deadly focal point event. I'm interested in that phrase, all the ingredients. How did you figure out what the recipe is for this kind of violent political movement? Were you looking at past events overseas? Exactly, Steve. So when you have a, in the case of the former Yugoslavia, for instance, um, you have a, a leader in Slobodan Milosevic who's clearly uh, stoking extremism. You have mass grievances on the part of Serbs. And then um, in the early 1990s, you have some uh, violence, which served as a focal point to help congeal all of those ingredients together into um, a new kind of mass movement with violence at its core. Someone listening is surely saying, come on, that's Yugoslavia or that's Iraq. Those are different places. This is America. I exactly agree with that, Steve, um, today. And that's why it's so important to take seriously the early stages of what's becoming a congealed mass movement before it congeals. The United States, of course, has its own history of violent political movements. Think of the Ku Klux Klan, which rose after the Civil War in an earlier era of racial and demographic change. The U.S. also has its own specific problems with disinformation. Chris Krebs, the former official who once fought falsehoods about the election, is now studying disinformation for a think tank. And unfortunately, the, the only way I think we're going to get past this is if our leaders, those that supported the big lie, uh, that voted to overturn the Electoral College, they have to own up to what they did. They have to say that we lied, that, that this was never true, and it was for a different outcome. And that is the first step towards healing, I think. You have to tell the people um, that you let me just up. break in. Let me just break in to suggest that that seems unlikely. Suppose they <laughs> never own up to the lie. 
what 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 is the way forward then? Oh, I am not naive enough to think that uh, they will they will own up. I am laying out a path to healing. Um, alternatively, you you have to hold them accountable through other means. The new administration is now reviewing the U.S. government's response to domestic extremism. Though it's been a problem for many years, it's not clear that the government has kept up. Michael Leiter is a former head of the National Counterterrorism Center. It was started after 9-11 and by law focuses on international threats. So I think the first step that the Biden administration is taking is quite a good one to do a comprehensive analysis across the U.S. government to try to understand how big a problem they have and where that problem is really worst. How does the infrastructure for international terrorism compare with the infrastructure for domestic terrorism? The international infrastructure really dwarfs what the U.S. government has for domestic terrorism. Domestic terrorism has always been a little bit of a backwater in the world of counterterrorism. The FBI is the lead agency with assistance from the Department of Homeland Security, uh, but it relies to an enormous extent also on state, local, and tribal officials. What are the legal and political problems that get in the way of attacking a domestic threat the way that you would an international one? There are certainly many legal challenges in international terrorism, many of the debates that uh, people are quite familiar with from the past 10 years, ranging from interrogation to surveillance. But all of those issues become that much more complex when you're talking about a, a purely domestic threat. What do you do, he says, if you're an FBI agent and learn of a citizen who is armed and speaking harshly about the government? Americans have a right to be armed and to speak harshly about the government. Law enforcement agencies will have to avoid the sort of profiling of right-wing figures that they once used against Muslims at home and abroad. I and others, we made many mistakes and undoubtedly unfairly profiled some individuals based on their religion. Not purposefully, but the system did that. The push from members of Congress post 9-11 was almost always to do more and really generally to look past any issues of profiling. I I don't think that is going to be the case here. Leiter suspects that today's extremists will enjoy more political protection. He argues their rights should be protected, but the U.S. will have to find the right approach to political violence. Now, as we've been talking through this problem, NPR's Hannah Alam has been listening. She's covered terrorism for years, including the January 6th attack. And Hannah, how does this threat look to you? Well, standing outside the Capitol that day on January 6th, I saw all the strands of American extremism in one place, just kind of all the groups that I cover under one umbrella there. The established groups were there, the white nationalists, the neo-Nazis, some of the militia groups. But the most disturbing part is that now, side by side with organized violent actors, you have thousands of otherwise sort of ordinary conservatives who are fans of Donald Trump. And they're now also radicalized because they've bought into disinformation and conspiracy theories. So for years now, domestic terrorism analysts have been warning that the old left-right ideological spectrum is a thing of the past. And that's what we saw in action at the Capitol, that you know, today's far right threat defies easy categorization. The extremists organize online and they have a lot of overlapping grievances. Well, President Trump, we should note, eventually disowned the violence of the Capitol and seems even to have disappointed some extremists when he did that. How does he affect this now? 
Well, he's at least less visible now that he's out of the White House. It's been deplatformed from Twitter. But Trump was seen as the unifying factor for a lot of these disparate groups. So even if specific groups didn't like him or his politics, he was at least seen as useful to their goal of mainstreaming. He repeatedly amplified right-wing grievances, hate speech. He retweeted white nationalists, QAnon conspiracy theorists, urged his supporters to, quote, fight against these made-up claims of election fraud. So now that he's sort of exited from the scene, or at least from such a visible role, we are seeing some splintering and infighting among these groups. But yes, he's leaving behind millions of supporters who believe those conspiracies, such a large block, in fact, that some domestic terrorism analysts say it amounts to a mass radicalization. How big a challenge is this for the Biden administration? Biden has already acknowledged that it'll be a national security priority, um, but terrorism analysts are waiting anxiously to see how he'll address it. Uh, The old anti-jihadist playbook was for a different kind of militancy, and we should note it left a stain on the U.S. record of civil rights and civil liberties. So there's recognition that you can't just dust off the old war on terror tactics to combat the far right. Uh, We're waiting to see what policies emerge, but so far what is different is that the Biden administration has shown the political will to tackle this. And analysts say that for a threat that's been historically ignored or played down, that's a start. NPR's Hannah Lamb, thanks. Thank you. It says we are on the brink under, under Trump, on the brink of fascism. Former President Donald Trump is facing his second impeachment trial, and the charge this time is incitement of insurrection. For more on the ongoing investigation of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th and the former president's role that day and before, I spoke with New York University School of Law professor and co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security blog, Ryan Goodman. Ryan, where are we at in terms of Congress trying to get a handle on what happened January 6th and also the climate that we seem to be in now post-January 6th. So Congress is on two tracks, it looks like. One track is uh, the impeachment uh, process and the trial that's going to take place in the Senate. And then the other track is uh, a bunch of congressional investigations that will try to make all sorts of determinations, including the security breach and the intelligence failure that led up to the January 6th events. Here we are with more and more evidence that there was coordination, that there was planning, and then there was an attack. And yet the Capitol Police were completely caught flat-footed. It's an incredible uh, failure on so many different levels. The FBI and DHS did not issue what would be a routine threat assessment. They produced those kinds of threat assessments for George Floyd protests, Black Lives Matters protests. So it's really an incredible situation in which concerns about uh, whether or not there were biases within the ways in which these agencies operated with respect to these uh, particular types of groups um, or something uh, more concerning with respect to political pressure uh, that might have been placed on the agencies. Uh, and But no doubt uh, there's uh, very serious concerns at both the preparation, and then also how they actually handled uh, the events on that particular day. What about the recent uh, warning by the Department of Homeland Security that we are to be vigilant throughout the country, not just in one specific location, for more actions like this? I mean, that's pretty unusual. It's very unusual. Um, It should 
alert everybody that something very serious is afoot. The last time they issued a bulletin like this was about a year ago, dealing with potential threats from Iran. And the time before that was about a year ago, dealing with potential threats from Al-Qaeda or ISIS. So the fact that they would at this time issue a national terrorism advisory alert across the country, that there is a concern that the domestic extremists who are still motivated by the same motivations that led them to the insurrection on January 6th are now a threat across the country is something very unusual, and it's certainly something that is a flashing light. A lot of people say the phrase domestic terrorism, but is there something on the books, so to speak, where we can charge people in the United States with that? One school of thought says there are plenty of resources currently available to charge these individuals, um, and especially uh, charges that include conspiracy that would apply to them in terms of when they're organizing as a group. A seditious conspiracy looks like it's on the horizon. The Department of Justice has suggested that those charges are likely coming. Another school of thought is that there should be domestic legislation passed for, quote-unquote, domestic terrorism. But civil libertarian groups are very concerned that that would have unintended consequences in the ways in which that would generate excessive authorities. Their answer to this is that there are ample um, authorities that we don't need to go down this path, and we've avoided going down this path for those kinds of concerns in the past. And it looks like there are no shortages um, of domestic criminal law um, authorities and other authorities for the FBI and the DHS to address the threat. They've been constrained, unfortunately, in the past few years with the Trump administration from being able to coordinate and really address the threat head on. What should the threshold be on figuring out whether a member of Congress or whether a member of the administration or the president's lawyer took part in an act of sedition or a conspiracy towards that? If there was any aiding and abetting or planning with respect to these groups that then uh, attacked the Capitol, that would uh, potentially be aiding and abetting criminal liability, uh, part of the uh, seditious conspiracy Uh, Certainly, there's also a question of incitement uh, to insurrection, federal criminal law, incitement to riot under D.C. law. And the D.C. attorney general has stated, in fact, that he is looking at incitement to riot with respect to the president's speech on uh, January 6th. Um, This is not to say that it was all pre-planned that uh, these individuals would have foreseen a commission of violence or killing of a police officer and other people. But if they planned and intended for individuals to go into the Capitol to disrupt the business of Congress, those very words are the words of a federal criminal statute, which is the one that's probably been most widely applied to the individuals that have currently been charged uh, for the events of January 6th. All right, NYU School of Law professor, Ryan Goodman, also co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security blog. Thanks so much. Thank you. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis 
that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it uh, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. On to our big story tonight at 9, where is Kyle Rittenhouse? The Kenosha County District Attorney's Office says he doesn't know where he is, and that is a violation of bond. They have filed a motion to have Rittenhouse arrested and his bail raised. Our Cassidy Williams live tonight with more on where his lawyers say Rittenhouse is tonight. Rittenhouse's lawyers say he and his family are at a safe house because they were getting death threats. His lawyers have now filed in court where that address is, but they've also filed a motion to keep the address from the public. Video from the night Kyle Rittenhouse allegedly shot three people has been seen by countless eyes. This helped him raise more than $2 million to post bond, but his legal team says it also brought death threats. Rittenhouse posted bond in November, listing his address as his family home in Antioch, Illinois. New court documents say on February 2nd, detectives went to that home and found he has not lived there for months. Something ADA Thomas Binger says is serious as he writes in the motion, quote, rarely does our community see accused murderers roaming about freely. And that quote, it is important to note that the $2 million came from a dubious internet fundraising campaign and the defendant and his family did not post any money toward that bond. As a result, the defendant is free from custody with minimal incentive to comply with his bond conditions. The motion asks the court to arrest Rittenhouse and increases bond by $200,000. Rittenhouse's legal team argues the move was all about safety. His attorneys say the family moved to a safe house and had asked prosecutors to keep the address private. The court filing includes an email from ADA Thomas Binger responding that says in part, quote, unless you can provide me with a specific, tangible and imminent threat or threats that would justify secrecy in this case, I am not willing to agree to redact your client's address from the public record. The judge will now have to rule on both motions, the prosecutor's motion to have Rittenhouse arrested and the defense's motion to keep his address private. Live in Brown Deer, Cassidy Williams, Fox 6 News. All right, Cassidy, thank you. Black babies cost less.
Rochester police say three officers have been pulled from patrol duty stemming from their involvement in the pepper spraying of a nine-year-old girl. One has been suspended. Two are on administrative leave. The incident happened on Avenue B last Friday, and police responded to a call for family trouble involving a stolen car. The nine-year-old girl ran from the house, and that's when her custodial parent told police she might harm herself or others. Well, police caught up with that girl, eventually handcuffed her, and when she refused to get into the patrol car, they pepper sprayed her. Now, the video sparking a protest this afternoon in Rochester. Jack Watson covered the protest from start to finish. He joins us now live from the Public Safety Building with more. Jack. Um, that early, er, early evening, late afternoon protest uh, lasted about three hours in the bitter cold after that uh, police-involved pepper spraying of a child. Tonight, protesters demanding fundamental change. We're here demanding a change from our, our chief, our mayor, our legislators. Protest several dozen strong moves down North Clinton Avenue. The demonstration reminiscent of the 2020 protests seeking justice in Daniel Prude's police-involved death, this time against Rochester police who pepper-sprayed a nine-year-old in police custody. I was terrified for that little baby. I was hurt. I was heartbroken. The protest organized by several groups, including Community Justice Initiative and Free the People Rock, demanding a new law to prevent children from being arrested and detained. Protesters moved several blocks south as the sun set, stopping on North Clinton and moving down a side street. There, a Rochester police patrol office. Protesters removed some barricades and chanted officers. If we don't get no justice, Officers tell the protesters to get away from the gate. The protesters don't budge and eventually move back up North Clinton Avenue. Demonstrators tonight urging local leaders to implement seismic structural change so this doesn't happen to another child in crisis again. This community needs to see boldness from their leaders, and we're not seeing that. People need to take a stand in leadership that's elected and say, not on my watch. Well, protesters were asked about uh, those officers being suspended. We learned tonight that one officer was suspended and two more placed on administrative leave. Uh, one protester tonight equated it to a paid vacation. Uh, and those suspensions, that one suspension uh, and that uh, two officers on administrative leave, those will stay in place until investigations are complete. Live at the Public Safety Building, Jack Watson, News 8. All right, Jack, thank you. Tonight, again, those police officers involved in the incident have been removed from patrol duty. And an announcement coming late this afternoon from City Hall. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. The St. Peter's family is traumatized. The patriarch of their family is dead. But the question is, could he have been saved? David Bell was one of the directors for St. Charles County's Central County Fire District. His wife tells us they made multiple visits to Barnes-Jewish St. Peter's Hospital for health issues. But each time, she says the hospital refused to admit him. Only News 4's Ashley Lincoln's been talking to Bell's family. Ashley, they're asking for an investigation. That's right, Samantha. The family tells me that they are concerned someone else could be turned away. Now, Bell's wife tells me that they went to this ER because it was close to their home. Her husband had been complaining about chest pain, and each time, she says, doctors sent him home with ibuprofen. We went because 
It was close. It's a decision Sadie Bell says she regrets. I know I can't blame myself, but I wish I would have took him somewhere else. I just turned 38. Her husband, David Bell, died in the parking lot of the Barnish Jewish St. Peter's Hospital after he'd been complaining about severe chest pain. He would give his last to anybody. I felt like what he was going through was urgent. And that's what I thought emergency rooms were for. The weekend of January 8th, she took David to the ER twice. Both times, she says, medical staff refused to admit the 39-year-old father of three, only prescribing him ibuprofen and diagnosing him with an inflamed heart. Bell went a third time, but this time, while at work, it was a fellow employee at Central County Fire and Rescue who took him. Sadie Bell says the employee became concerned after David started having breathing problems. I called him, I said, what hospital did you take him to? He said, I went on and took him back to Born's Jewels because I know that's where y'all have been going. I said, oh, I just wish you wouldn't have took him there. He said, well, why not? And I said, because every time that we have taken him, all they did was give him ibuprofen and send him home. And I really think they missing something. When Belle got to the hospital, she says her husband was sitting outside in a wheelchair. After begging doctors to run tests and admit him, she says they refused. He said, well, ma'am, he's already been here twice for the same thing, and we already diagnosed him. Fed up, they decided to go to another hospital, but then... We got halfway to the car, and he said, oh, Sadie, and I said, baby, what's wrong? And I started running and screaming, help me, please help me. His arm went up, his eyes went up back in his head, and he slumped down, and I already knew. I knew when he needed the help, they didn't help him. Bell says she believes her husband received a lack of treatment because both doctors and medical staff dismissed him. Now, both she and medical reports that we found say that African-Americans often have a high mortality rate because they don't receive the same level of health care as white counterparts. I just don't understand why they wouldn't help him. Numbers from the American Medical Association show black Americans' mortality rate is 24% higher than white Americans. One of the main contributing factors the AMA points out is doctors not addressing pain levels from black patients. I don't want any family to feel what we're feeling right now. News 4 reached out to Barnes Jewish for a comment. They told us due to privacy laws, they cannot share details on Bell's case. When people come to ask you for help and they need help, I shouldn't have to come one, two, three times. I shouldn't have to be sitting here grieving my husband. My children should not have to have, shouldn't have to not have a father. And we found out that Bell was tested for COVID. That test came back negative. Now we're waiting autopsy results to determine the depth of, of the, uh, the depth of Bell. Now a GoFundMe account has been set up to help the family. We'll have all of that information on our News 4 app. Reporting live, Ashley Lincoln, News 4. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade. In for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. I think we heard at least two different campaigns for crowdsourcing. 
white killer white team Kyle Rittenhouse got his bond paid crowdsourcing got him an old GoFundMe I thought they put rules in remember that that was back like 2000 2014 2015 because it was like Dylan Storm Roof went out and did his killing in South Carolina and then Michael Brown Jr. now that was 2014 uh, when he was killed I won't say the officer's name in St. Louis but he got a big GoFundMe page even remember Daniel Holtzclaw in Oklahoma he raped all those black females exclusively black females that was in 2014 as well Uh, and he got a big GoFundMe page raised thousands of dollars I'm sure I could think of more examples white killers and rapists getting all kinds of money we want to pitch in let me send you a quarter nickel a few dollars let me make sure you get your get your bond paid for now the crowdsourcing that we heard at the end black father Mr. Bell he dies I don't know if it was the coon man he was in Florida not Virginia but a white racist doctor white racist hospital staff he doesn't get adequate help and they just stick him in a real chair and throw him outside mm. oh well we tried did everything we could we didn't we told you we gave him some ibuprofen what more do you want we used to be a time we wouldn't even give a negro ibuprofen hmm? let's see how much crowdsourcing contributions they get we're so sorry black male dies down in Florida maybe Governor DeSantis maybe he'll you know pick up the charge we're sorry this is a disgrace to have this sort of thing happen in the Sunshine State never again lead the charge I'm going to sign a big check myself right from the governor's mansion maybe Hmm. Saturday February 6 2021 so I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in Dial in if you have thoughts, observations to share. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Many things to share before we get to the callers. Number one, uh, I did not include the clip, although I had it right there. I thought about it, but, you know, I guess people might want to talk and share a thought or two Uh, but the trial of Jelaine Maxwell uh, she is the accused madam assistant in the criminal enterprise of Jeffrey Epstein a convicted sexual predator uh, and he was facing charges at the time of his suicide alleged suicide Uh, he was facing charges for uh, child rape and child trafficking and and all the rest of it Uh, major charges uh, and Jocelyne Maxwell, white woman, she has also been uh, implicated in all of this. She's in custody now and uh, is facing lots of heavy charges as well, serious charges as well. This week for Black History Month, it was reported. And in fact, I can tell you how I found this. 
Court TV, they have lots of archival footage on the O.J. Simpson trial. So I go do my O.J. study prepping for the book club. At the bottom, they'll just have lots of reports about things that are, you know, happening. Other things that they talk about on Court TV beyond O.J. Simpson. So they've got the Kenosha shooting, Kyle Rittenhouse skip bail. Uh, They keep interrupting. I'm trying to, you know, go through and find where the gloves are because that's where we're at for this Friday. Find the glove clip and interrupt uh, George Floyd proceedings in the offices. And I get that down, get that down. Ahmaud Arbery, we got to get that down, get that down. Breonna Taylor, I get that down. I said, dang, is everything on court TV about dead black people? That's all people sit around on court TV and watch? police officers who shot black people random citizens who shot black people or black people sometimes who shot black people they got the so called massacre in Oklahoma I think they have a black suspect for that monsters and monstrosities but is that everything that's on court TV no Jeffrey Epstein is there too I've kept flipping down and uh, clicked on it so she's denying everything and she also is trying to get bail saying let me out of here these are false charges I didn't do anything that Jeffrey Epstein is a creep uh, I didn't even want to hang out with him anymore you know let me out of this confinement thing this is what you do to black people you know Khalif Browder and such it's not how you treat a, a white woman I'm a British white woman no less so she goes on with all this you know let me out of here blah 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 I didn't do anything she gets halfway into it and they say now we had two big uh, what they call it bombshells as they say this week they say one they're upset Miss uh, Maxwell they're upset her attorneys they say we did not get a just proceeding because they had the grand jury in White's Plains New York uh, as opposed to having it in a more diverse area where black and brown people could have been a part of the grand jury does not get any better than tacky I almost play you can go to court uh, TV that was just this week you could probably look elsewhere but it was on court TV they had video talking about all this like you are facing charges child prostitution all of that child trafficking for child prostitution underage sex all of that most disgraceful charges you can imagine right up there and as opposed to focusing on that I didn't do it or telling the truth if you did do it go ahead and confess and let's get all this over with as opposed to wasting time and money I would like to to stop and just point out that we have allowed a travesty of an all-white jury to indict me you don't have one single Negro after after Jeffrey Tubin and everyone else just sat around and told us how dumb and ignorant black jurors are isn't that what they said OJ Simpson we just been reading all about how dumb and ignorant no college education and no newspaper subscription no magazine subscription can't spell dictionary like where did we get these idiots from and it's oh no Miss Maxwell can't get justice because we didn't have any black people on the jury for black history month does not get any better than tacky I had to watch it like twice just to make sure I heard what they were saying correctly and they reported it with a straight face next I did mention OJ Simpson go ahead and get that done now we will be picking up in the book club I said once we hit to the trial every week pretty much was going to be something exciting because they had so many dramatic turns and things in the trial pretty much every week until we are done it's going to be something dramatic we still have not got to the Furman tapes we've not got to the closing argument closing arguments I should say 
there are many other points, even some things that were not a big deal during the trial. But to me, they are a big deal when they start talking, having huge arguments about someone sounding black. We've talked about that even recently having programs. Is there a, such a thing as sounding black? And matter of fact, the way the sequencing was first sounding white, then sounding black and that became a big to do but even before we get to all of that the glove demonstration that is where we will be at this coming week on the book club I am so excited this might be another one we might have to read a little bit less uh, because uh, the backstory, as they call it on the gloves is extraordinary I had no idea there was so much behind how they got to the point where OJ Simpson was asked by the prosecution to try on the gloves of the killer purportedly in front of the jurors and the whole world. Uh, and many people say this is the point where the prosecution lost their case, but we will be talking about that this week. Dr. Welsing moment in the middle. I didn't even know until we started reading all of this and studying everything that F Lee Bailey, who guest on the program said to Christopher Darden, you have the uh, balls of a stud field mouse. Now it gets to the genital level so quickly in that book. Remember they just had the exchange back and forth in court about the size of F. Lee Bailey's penis. And now we get a few weeks later and now we're in the courtroom talking about Christopher Darden's genitals, black male. Amazing. There's even more to it than that. It is. I cannot wait. And the lies. Oh, the lies. 25 years of lies. If someone had, if someone asked me, Augusti, you've wasted your time. You've wasted our listeners time talking about OJ Simpson and this foolishness from a quarter century ago, a quarter century ago. We're in the middle of a, a global health pandemic. Children aren't in school. We just heard about that. Black people are struggling to even get access to the Rona vaccine. We got all these problems, businesses being shut down and economic turmoil. All of this new presidential administration, the former president is being impeached. Like why in the world are you wasting time talking about Oriental James and what happened 25 years ago? One, you can learn a lot about the system of white supremacy from that case. Wow. All areas of people activity covered Two. You can learn a lot specifically about deception. Wow. The gloves that alone for 25 years to be able to see. Wow. White people have been lying about these gloves for 25 years. It is. And some things easily like this is not. We have to guess. And no, this was settled. And they just continue to lie and lie and lie. That right there. I'm so excited. The gloves, the glove demonstration coming this week on the book club. I'm so excited. Cannot wait. Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Oriental James Simpson. Looking forward. Let's see. Next up. Uh, They had the report talking about I guess 
the last one that we heard, the black father down in Florida. Remember Dr. Susan Moore? We talked about her right at the end of uh, 2020. She was a black doctor. Uh, They reported that she tested positive for COVID-19. She was in the hospital and she made the video post talking about how she was being treated really poorly. Uh, She thought it was racism. That's what she identified in the video. And then she died, unfortunately, about two or three weeks after the video. And then additional mistreatment, even in death, after she passed away, the white hospital officials came out and said, oh, man, we weren't racist. She was intimidating. You know, she she frightened some of our our staff members. She had that O.J. Simpson look and spooked us. Remember that? Thought of that almost immediately when I heard of the black doctor. And I think a few folks have said, hey, maybe it's not that black people have all these comorbidities and eat the bad things and smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol and don't take care of ourselves and don't go see the doctor. Maybe it's the coon man. And coon woman, I'm sure they're racist female physicians as well. Next. They had the report talking about the uh, impact of the school closure on children. That's one of the reasons why I said we want to do the program. If we have any folks, uh, if you have offspring yourself, or perhaps maybe you have nieces or nephews, or if you work with children, maybe, you know, in your so-called extended family, Uh, Or if you work with children, whatever it is, if you have access to some younger folks uh, who might be interested in talking about what this past uh, year has been like uh, the virtual learning, you know, has it been better if but if we have any folks who transitioned, if they were in a public school setting. And over the past year, if they've transitioned uh, to homeschool and maybe they're going to stick with that, at least for the time being, that would be awesome as well. But. Uh, I think it would be informative just to kind of capture that uh, this year, uh, the past 12 months, I mean, has been extraordinarily stressful uh, for many, many folks uh, and has caused so much of a disruption for so many people all over the world. Children are no different. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like uh, really at any uh, point. You know, if you were really young elementary school, as they say, or if you were uh, a senior in high school, we've talked to some of the folks who are at the collegiate level, but I can't imagine uh, just, you know, what sort of impact we heard the sound clip that was or the report where they were talking about the impact on non-white children, children who already uh, had academic problems. I've heard uh, some of the reports from uh, children who have what they call special needs and how they feel they have been woefully underserved. In fact, that statement would be true even before the pandemic, but is especially true now uh, in terms of them being underserved or their needs not being met at all. So if we have any folks, just drop an email and let me know um, that you either have younger people who would be interested in participating, listening, not spectating, drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. will perhaps we we'll have to see uh, can be challenging coordinating with a lot of folks, but we'll try to see for maybe this coming Wednesday, maybe uh, if not this coming Wednesday, which I believe is the 10th, make sure I'm accurate. I think it's yes, the 10th. So we'll uh, attempt perhaps for the 10th of February. Uh, I'll see, you know, if we have folks who are interested and how many, and if uh, that 
uh, Wednesday evening, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. We'll see if that works. If not, we'll look at something later this month. But we'll definitely do it for February uh, if we have folks who are willing and interested. Much obliged to Ari for the reminder. Uh, let's see. Next, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse in Wisconsin mentioned for the uh, crowdsourcing. Can you imagine? We're talking about OJ Simpson. Can you imagine? Now that's that's comparable, right? Double murder in Wisconsin, double murder in California. So we got basically the same thing, uh, except in this one, it's no mystery. Kyle said, "Oh yeah, I did it, and I should have done it." OJ said he was innocent, but other than that, same thing. Can you imagine? OJ gets bond for all of this. I'm gonna go hang out at home until the trial, and then they go to Rockingham and they can't find the Jews. Where's the juice? We can't find him. They would have had you talk about the militia going to kidnap Governor uh, Whitmore. Man, Mark Furman, the Oath Keepers, Timothy McVeigh, everyone like we are going to get the juice like right now. Scoundrel trying to abscond on us uh, again. I could not imagine it. Wouldn't even have to be O.J. Simpson. Anybody classified as black can you imagine you are facing double murder charges where you're not even saying I didn't do it you're just saying I should have done it they were wrong they were out there hooligans in the street running around about Mr. Jacobs and all that Mr. Blake uh, and all that nonsense you know I should have done it and all right we'll we'll let you you know go sit at home sure you want to do a little yoga take care of your mental health between now and, and when you go to court and you just slip on a P.O. box. We don't even have a physical location. Come check in on you. Not that. Make sure you're behaving yourself. Haven't ran off to kill some other protesters. Nah, nah, nah. Chilling. And, and it takes months for all of this to be found out that, whoa, we don't even know where this fella is. Again, now you can contrast this with lots. O.J. Simpson, nine-year-old who gets pepper sprayed. Lots like Wow, what does it mean to be white? Absolutely amazing. Uh, let's see. Which right, I have one more uh, thing on the Rona. Make sure I get in. We are doing our 12th year of broadcasting, which is amazing as we have been despised most of our time on the program, whites, non-whites, that is to be uh, expected, but 12 years uh, in, I guess, about two weeks, listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, you can hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. When you get to the blog, look to the left, you'll see the latest blog post. Uh, book review of Isabel Wilkerson's case uh, important because the documentary or whatever they're going to call it is about to come out that is one of the worst books I've ever read easily the second worst book although I think Jeffrey Tubin should be mentioned like whew, the deception is worthy of being one of the worst books ever anyway the review of case is there important for many reasons especially once the film comes out it'll be a book review uh, almost slash movie review Look to the right on the blog. You will see my PayPal button. 
Uh, much obliged to all the folks who have invested via PayPal for a dozen years. Uh, you'll also see my cash app link, uh, the address cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Hopefully the broadcast has provided accurate, constructive information on what white supremacy racism is, how it works, suggestions on things victims of white supremacy, non-white people can do to get this problem solved as soon as possible. Uh, You can also invest one just by sharing the broadcast posted on social media, wherever you post constructive content for other non-white people uh, to access, share links to the program or specific broadcasts. Uh, You can also invest going to amazon.com, my wish list, Gus T. Renegade. Again, enormous gratitude to all the folks who have nabbed an item or three over the years. Much obliged. Again, hope the cows has been worthy of your time and energy. Uh, Also, just what do they call it? House cleaning duties. Uh, SoundCloud. I have not updated. It has been 2021 has been no better for myself than 2020. In fact, I said before, it does not feel like a so-called new year. Just trying to take care of my SoundCloud account has been one of the most stressful things of this year and a year of many, many stressful things. Something that should have been like a push of a button and everything is complete. Had to talk to the Better Business Bureau, and it has been absolutely amazing. Uh, Hours of phone conversations over 2020, 2021. It has not mattered at all. It has all just been absolutely unpleasant with a capital U, (laughs) like all the way through, really. Bold face print, capital letters, but persevering nonetheless dr welsing she said be not discouraged even though soundcloud is out is has not been updated yet hopefully all that will be resolved shortly we shall see uh but black talk radio network is up to date uh apple podcast is up to date google podcasts is up to date we're on a variety of platforms where you should be able to access uh the cows most recent episodes uh, we're going back for some years now. I was in the midst of trying to correct the archives, but uh, one, there are thousands of programs. Whites actively disrupt our archives, and then there have been lots of distractions. So uh, in the midst of lots of chaos, uh, the cows continues. The archives are there. If you have difficulty locating something or accessing the current feed, drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. Let's see the reports. There were numerous about fewer black people getting access to the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, I know we have lots of folks who are justifiably skeptical and or reluctant about uh, getting the vaccine. Have we talked about that for a long time? Uh, It is at least that seems to be a consistent pattern worldwide, uh, not just here in the U S where black people uh, are not having the same type of access to the vaccine. They had a report, even the continent, the entire continent, they weren't talking about a specific country uh, saying that the entire continent, they are not going to be getting the vaccine anytime to anytime soon. uh, And that they will be lagging behind the rest of the world uh, in dealing with all of this and getting their population inoculated. So I guess, depending on, you know, where you feel about that, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing, but at least that does seem to be a global pattern. 
black people reportedly not having access to the vaccine and or white people having much easier access in some instances, as they reported, uh, actually taking spots away from non-white people where these vaccines were supposed to be intended for people who live here. So that is something to think about. It doesn't it doesn't seem at least from what has been reported thus far, it doesn't seem like there's some aggressive push to get a needle into every black person. At least that's not what it seems like so far. We shall see. I also thought it was significant within that report. They said for a number of the people who are currently getting vaccined, they're not aware of their race. They are part of some ambiguous racial classification. I thought that was uh, stunning. And that sort of thing tends to be convenient for racists when they're vague or they just say, oh, I don't know. We're, we're, we're ignorant about the racial classifications and, you know, who's getting vaccined. I generally say all of that benefits racist white supremacists because then you don't have information. You don't have clarity, as they say, to be able to make an assessment about who's getting vaccines. Are you deliberately vaccinating non-white people? Are you deliberately withholding the vaccine from non-white people? You can't make any sort of determination. And I mean, just the nonsense of that to say that, oh, well, we just couldn't determine like they had a bunch of Rachel Dozels. Remember her? We just had a bunch of them. She, you know, had that curly hair and everything and had her sunglasses on. I I just marked other on the phone and kept going. I didn't want to be around her too much. So other keep it moving. I guess in my experience, white people are not confused about racism, white supremacy or racial classifications. And if they are, they ask questions to get clarification can't practice racism if you don't know what the racial classifications are following logic let's see i think i can pause there a few other things to to discuss but i'll pause there the number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate, uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, suggestions, observations, uh, that'll make sure everyone gets at least one chance to speak. Uh, if you have additional thoughts, uh, just wait until everyone has shared at least one time and then you can rejoin us to give us your extra commentary. Uh, if you know you are in a noisy environment, if you could please use your mute button, that would be great. Uh, it just helps uh, so that we do not have to compete with a lot of shifting of the phone uh, or background noise. People are listening to music or they got a Black History Month celebration going on, whatever it is, just so that we don't have to hear all of that. Uh, as I said, you can unmute if you want to share again, but that would be super appreciated. Much obliged. Uh, also for this broadcast specifically, if we could not use metaphors, uh, frequently suspected racists, they will use a lot of rhetoric, metaphors, comparisons, often to suggest that two separate entities are identical. Frequently, this is not the case at all. Uh, this is just another method of mass deception uh, for victims, myself included. We are still learning and a lot of us we've been exposed to this misconduct for a lot of years uh, sometimes we just don't have logic 
to articulate our views. Uh, and so we will substitute and add in some sort of analogy or metaphor, whatever it is uh, for this broadcast. If we could make an effort to be precise, exact, specific with what we want to say. I will prompt about the metaphors. Thank you kindly. Uh, with that, uh, we will go ahead and get to the first few folks who dialed in. Uh, again, if we have any folks, if you have gotten the vaccine, I know we've had a few folks who've talked about written about their experience getting the vaccine, what motivated them, uh, what motivated them to do so. That would be great. Feel free to share that. I'm sure we have folks who, uh, even if they are unwilling, resistant about the vaccine, would still enjoy getting that information. Uh, with that, first few folks uh, who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, if you have commentary to share, a line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Greetings, Red in Ohio. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. Um, to answer your question about the vaccine, I have not um, taken it, but I think I've spoken before about some of my older family members who've taken it. I know in Ohio, uh, the the vaccine is being released to certain um, ages, the older demographic. And I think like the first responders, I think that's what they are, the front line. I forgot what the the colloquialism or euphemism is right now, but um, the some of my older some of the older people in my family they have taken it because they feel finally confident. I guess with the vaccine being given to white people, and so they went ahead and took they went ahead and took it because they they were also tired of being in the house. Now I did speak to a first responder, a black first responder who had the opportunity to take the vaccine and they had declined it. Um, they didn't actually feel confident yet. So I thought that was interesting. So somebody who would have to be around um, other, be around like sick people or whatever, they, they felt like they weren't, they still weren't ready to take it. Um, I wouldn't take it either. Uh, the other commentary that I have, it'll be real quick about the clip. Uh, there was a clip that was talking about, um, I think it was uh, three different people, if I'm not mistaken. It sounded like two females and one male. Um, they were being asked uh, by the interviewer about the um, where the vaccination um offices were in certain areas and of course they used the the phrase black and brown which is 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 really always confusing to me um but they had said one of the options to have the vaccine more available to black people is to have it um is to have like the National Guard uh, be available to assist with vaccinating people. And that seems like that would have the opposite effect. If the National Guard is passing out the vaccine, that's definitely not going to make me confident that this is something that black people should take. It almost sounds like apocalyptic. Um, and the other uh, clip that I wanted to, 
discuss was I don't know I forgot what the man's name was, but it was the first interviewer in one of the um, NPR clips that was talking about the white extremists and the interviewer he had I'm sorry the interviewee has said that 25 or 27 percent of the white extremists I think they were speaking about I don't think I'm I apologize I was trying to take some notes but it was about the Capitol but I can't remember if these were the the estimates of the people who were in the Capitol but then anyways 25 or 27 percent of them were white collar professionals and that was unusual and I don't know why they would allow I don't want to say why I don't know why because I mean you know it's just racism white supremacy but that's a clear lie because the history of the country white professionals have always been um, involved with terrorizing black people or just causing some type of havoc so that I that was a clear lie, but then they also use the term disinformation because I guess that's that's like some new subject of study. Uh, the disinformation that the previous Donald, the previous president, um, would disseminate, but they're also disseminating misinformation. So I'll I'll meet my line. Thank you for allowing me to share. Much obliged, Red in Ohio. That was such a great point. I knew I had uh, one note that I had forgot to write down, and that was definitely one. And that's a metaphor too: white collar, <clears throat> white collar crime, as it were, even. Uh, and I was so I was thinking when he said that we just had Philip Dre on the program, white man suspected racist. He had so many examples uh, in that book of governors elected officials, doctors, lawyers. These are not one tooth hobos who just is, Oh yeah, I'm gonna go and lynch me a nigra to that. Not pitchfork. Ben Tillman, governor of South Carolina, boasting, bragging. Yes. Went out and got the niggers. Yes. That's at the hands of persons unknown. He was just with us uh, a couple days ago, as it were not filled with fricking hobos and the poor whites of Appalachia rife in the Ku Klux Klan not at Woodrow Wilson even like anyway yeah excellent point uh, from uh, Red in Ohio uh, yeah we'll have to see how the I have heard that before uh, for some other black people said they were going to kind of wait and see uh, and once it seemed like enough white people were doing it that was their uh, barometer as it were they were going to wait and see how many individuals classified as white get this procedure or medication before they decide whether or not it would be uh, safe uh, for them to follow as well so have to do what you can to make assessments in the system of racism white people do not make it easy uh, other folks much obliged read in Ohio other folks who dialed in with uh, a hand up proceed may I be heard Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to that's the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, definitely the language uh, was well uh, prepared and crafted. Um, I noticed 
the term was used one of the segments talking about the people, I believe in the New York area, um, getting the vaccine. They said it was more non-residents getting vaccinated with the, uh, with multiple doses more than the black and brown people in the Bronx area or in the different areas in that state. But they, they just couldn't say white. Like, why not say white people? That's what I'm thinking. It, it could have been because all the, these non-residents classified as white, non-white, like that can get into confusion. Um, the segment where they were talking about um, the term right-wing extremists, and one guy was saying, well, this is just so unusual that the FBI hadn't had this information on them or something. And uh, the last time this was done is when they were talking about something from Iran or, you know, Iran. Definitely people that seem like they classify as non-white. And I guess prior to that, where they were talking about ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And obviously they speak with that with greater racist enthusiasm uh, and you know the the black flag that may have been some kind of symbolism with how uh, the system of white supremacy is how everything that's dark is connected to um, some kind of racist ideology uh, and I noticed it was an interview and this was the, like I never seen that done on the audio segment where it was, it may have been two uh, white people speaking and they were talking about healing. Um, and the, the way that it went was he, he was saying that, well, there, I guess he was talking about the people in Congress or whatever people that work in the government, they need to apologize. And, and then he gets interrupted and the guy comes on and says, well, like, hey, you know, you know, this isn't, they may not own up to it or whatever terminology they use. And the guy that was speaking first, he was sounding so sure that they were going to do this. And then he um, comes back in and says, now, you know, I'm not dumb enough to think that they're going to just openly apologize. Like the, the way that they coordinated that, it just seemed like they, um, to be direct, they were both, uh, practicing racism in a very professional way, in my opinion, because uh, the the guy started out like he was he was sure that they were gonna, um, I guess, apologize, I guess, or own up to it to quote unquote heal. He said, "I'm just trying to lay down a path to healing." You know the way he said it um, was just. Like he was just confident that it was going to happen. And then he comes back and says, oh, well, you know, I'm not dumb enough to know that they're going to just do it right away. Um, high level deception, in my opinion. Uh, and that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged caller in Florida. Great point as well. Uh, I think that's an example of Dr. Marimba. I need. she talks about rhetorical ethic. Uh, where white people will espouse and talk about values and virtues that sound like democracy, justice, reconciliation, 
healing, equity, and it'll just go on and on from there when they are not they are vested in dedicated to white supremacy racism none of these uh, other vague concepts but they will fool a lot of us victims of racism into thinking that oh yes they're about healing and that's all we need to do is get old you know Mitch McConnell and President Trump or whomever else they think is responsible yeah just to get them to be honest and you know say that they're sorry and own up to what they did and then you're like wait a minute now come on you you know that's and then he's like oh yes 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 I'm not I'm not dumb enough to think that I'm just you know laying out a path to healing which is a metaphor don't even know what that means like what exactly are you talking about healing whom what does that even mean exactly like lying that's why I say pay attention to the to the uh, those chuckles uh, and things and white people are lying like oh you cut me on my lie ha 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 okay good one good one you got me you got me yeah white people uh, just be mindful uh, when speaking that's why I say those metaphors be really try to get specifics and sometimes that might mean asking questions uh, to get specific but those those metaphors they can get us a lot of times anywho uh, the number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate. Other folks that we have greetings, Gus. Retired firefighter, yes, sir. And greetings to everyone else on the line. Uh, report on DCS program. We had a session today. Uh, nice weather. It was actually somewhere around. Uh, late 70s, early 80s. Um, Normally what we do is uh, we uh, line up in formation and uh, from there uh, they recite uh, an oath and uh, we give like a uh, morning briefing and then we do some exercises and uh from there go inside and uh uh have uh, a little bit of uh a little snack to to eat uh some of the kids i guess uh probably don't uh get anything before they come out to the uh the parents drop them off at the school so we have uh you know little snacks for them uh and there's choices uh, with fruit as well as uh, juices like orange juice that's available uh, so they can make some good choices. Uh, and uh, in turn, uh, the audiovisual that I showed today was another clip on the Eyes on the Prize series uh, dealing with the uh, world-renowned personality, Muhammad Ali. Uh, actually the clip was about, the clip was about, uh, the advent of non-white black people, uh, compensating for the negative, uh, uh, external look of non-white people 
and uh, through caricatures on movies, television, uh, just in general, people over decades, over centuries, in some cases, uh, having a negative uh, illustration of non-white people, especially non-white people who are racially classified as black, whereas non-white people got to the point where they didn't like the way themselves look externally. And uh, during that time, they were, you know, different people were, prom- were promoting a, uh, a more honest uh, reality about looks. Uh, they, uh, they started off with several poets like Sonia Sanchez, I believe, out of New York. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. His, his uh, son is the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. I just can't think of that other poet name. Uh, some uh, early redemption of uh, rappers that call themselves the last poets. Uh, and then it broke into the, uh, the story of Muhammad Ali because he kind of like emphasized that with his own personality <laughs> in itself. Uh, and it told this story. The clip lasted for about maybe 20, maybe 20 minutes or so. And uh, as I've always mentioned before, the young people have some interesting questions uh, at the end of the uh, clip as far as some of the questions that they ask. Uh, and, and, you know, things went, went pretty well. Uh, over, the, over the past week, there's been, there's been a accelerance of non-white black people uh, shooting other non-white black people down here. I'm not sure exactly in detail what is going on uh, uh, about it, but uh, I have heard it, uh, and uh, it was talked about today and uh, to the uh, young fellas to emphasize on why we have a uh, quote-unquote DCS program. And I reminded them that I am not a, I, I do not describe myself as a mentor. Uh, I describe uh, the mentoring is around a code that I try to share with them on thought, speech, and action. Correct thought, speech, and action. Things that don't work, throw them away. And uh, that's my report. Thank you. Hmm. Much obliged. Retired firefighter in uh, Florida. I believe it was uh, Leroy Jones, a Mary Baraka. Uh, His son is now mayor in New Jersey. Yeah, that's exactly who it is. Yes. Cowbell. I knew you knew it. (laughs) Have my moments. Have my moments. Uh, That is timely with the. Well, I guess, unfortunately, it's it's probably always timely with regards to non-white people being violent with other non-white people. Uh, that is for sure in the uh, 10 stops. And in my view, why it's so important to no name calling uh, other non-white people, because a lot of times that conflict escalates and you end up with the violence. Uh, so that's one way to yeah. stop that no name calling so we can try to minimize as much of that as possible but it does seem like there has been uh, an increase in uh, all sorts of violence but non-white people being uh, violent with each other I said 
Court TV. Now they have the report about uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and uh, her saying, hey, it's, it's no black people on the jury. You know, I'm upset about that. You all are depriving me of justice. Um, <clears throat> they also had the report about in Oklahoma. I said the uh, massacre, that report, a suspect in a Muskogee murder on Tuesday is facing multiple charges after five children and a man were shot to death at a residence. Muskogee County District Attorney Orville Loge, Lodge, L-O-G-E, not sure, said Wednesday afternoon that he's charging 25-year-old Jerron Pridgen with six counts of murder, seven counts of shooting with intent to kill, and one count of possession of a firearm while under probation. Muskogee police said that Pridgen is the one who called 911 after committing the crime. I forgot to say, Muskogee, Oklahoma, that is allegedly where Mr. Fuller was born. We have homicides, Logue said yep. in, in a Wednesday afternoon news conference. Nothing of this magnitude. It's been just 24 hours since the gruesome killing. The five children were all under 10 years old. The oldest was nine. All of them were shot to death, allegedly by the father of three of the five killed. Police said the shooter then turned the gun on his own brother killing Javarian Lee then turned the gun on the children's mother Brittany Anderson she survived but remains in the hospital in critical condition Anderson's family said she is alive but barely able to talk I'm not even able to read anymore like whoa this I did I saw this earlier this week but I mean there has been no improvement at all to 2021 um I don't know all the details of what motivated, but wow, um, self-care, the system of white, I said monsters and monstrosities. That is what the system of white supremacy produces. And particularly in this environment where it's just so much stress and, and strife about all kinds of things, <sighs> no justification, but I mean, wow. Um, try to do everything that you can to stay safe, uh, under these extraordinarily dangerous conditions. Um, man, condolences to the family. That is wow. No words. Uh, other folks that we have missed totally. Uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. I'll be heard. Rob formally in Wisconsin. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus and callers and listeners on the line. Um, condolences to the uh, wife of the uh, black male that uh, passed away from the inaccurate treatment in the, with the healthcare system. Uh, that uh, sounds very, it sounds familiar to me. Um, and it, it motivates me to <clears throat> file a grievance against the doctor uh, that treated me in that manner. So it'll be some sort of record uh, of that mistreatment. Uh, and hopefully, <clears throat> uh, you know, things like that can stop happening and uh, more of us uh, speak up, you know, if we feel that we are not being treated in the correct manner. Um, I suspect that, you know, a lot of times, you know, we may not even realize that we're not receiving 
the uh, most adequate treatment that can be received, you know, being in that, um, <clears throat> being with the doctor and there being an unequal balance of power. You know, sometimes in that situation, uh, one may feel powerless. So, uh, condolences. And uh, I wanted to report uh, something that I paid attention to watching the news today. Uh, the sequence of these uh, reports was very interesting to me. So there was some type of unrest at a jail in St. Louis, Missouri. And from the way that the pictures looked, it would give the impression that at some point these black males were in control of the jail. Like they showed a picture where like they was holding up a sign and, you know, uh, throwing up like a black power, you know, but ball fist up. And uh, it, looked, uh, it looked at choreographed, you know, it looked at, uh, it looked suspicious. And then, so the next story to follow that was a story about a non-white couple and their child, young child had come up missing and they suspected the couple of having some involvement with the child coming up missing. And then the next story was the report about Brett Reed, I believe his name is, the brother of <clears throat> the uh, head football coach for the Kansas City Chiefs, the one that's going to be in the Super Bowl. So when they reported this story, they said that, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs rolled into the town of the Super Bowl without one of their head coaches. And then they went on to say that he admitted to drinking alcohol, slammed into like two other vehicles, leaving, hurting, harming two children, had to be taken to the hospital, four and five years old. One of the children is in critical condition. And they, so he admitted to drinking alcohol um, when they, uh, brought up his previous record. He had been under the influence of alcohol before, uh, dro uh, drove into a shopping cart in the parking lot, uh, pulled a firearm on someone before in the, uh, uh, I want to say it was a, some type of, I don't know the incident, but he pulled a firearm on someone before and the only thing that they said that Mr. Reed uh, was going, they said Mr. Reed was under investigation. Like, not that he had been arrested or, you know, um, you know, like this guy, just, you know, I, I thought that was real interesting. Um, and that, that's all I have to share at this time. Thank you. Much obliged. Rob in California, medical apartheid. I'm sure you can uh, relate to black male, black person, period, uh, getting incorrect care. And people say, oh, you're just making excuses. There's nothing wrong with you. 
Get out of there. Here, take these ibuprofen and be quiet. That's a uh, standard. I did read the reports about Brett Reed. Uh, that is uh, Andy Reed, the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, defending Super Bowl champs who are in Florida with retired firefighter, uh, ready to play in the big ball game tomorrow. Uh, we've had Dr. Welsing on the program many times for Super Bowl Sunday. Hmm. Now, I said, wow, because I read that. And I actually, I know about Brett Reed, not because I'm a Kansas City Chiefs groupie, but because Michael Vick. Michael Vick, when he came back from the dog incident uh, and the white people said he should have got the electric chair and he should have been killed and anyone who kills a dog, you should die and all the rest of it. Uh, Andy Reid hired him. He came to Philadelphia to play quarterback, ended up getting a big contract and made the Pro Bowl, played some great football, great games, all that whoopee, great redemption story, as they say. But Andy Reid talked about, hey, I know all about second chances. My son, he's been to prison and he's had drug problems, been very open about it. And, you know, he's corrected things. And my son went and talked to Michael Vick and blah, blah, blah. And all that. Great. All right. That's how I knew about Brett Reed. So when I saw this report, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Is that the son who already had like the drug problems and has been to prison and everything? Like, really? And I read the report like, yep. Wow. <laughs> I said, whoa, man. I, I have seen NFL scandals. I know how they handle a Ray Rice. I know how they handle a Michael Vick. I know how they handle uh, Ben Roethlisberger. He was accused of having sexual intercourse with underage uh, females. Jeffrey Epstein, maybe type thing. Uh, Ray Rice, he was uh, accused and admitted to uh, engaging in domestic violence. Really horrible. Uh, totally wrong. First time, last time. And he acknowledges all of this. I know how they deal with scandal. I suspect if Brett Reed was a black person and his brother would then have to be also a black person. And this had happened like days before the Super Bowl. Like, ooh. This would be the lead like, oh, my Lord, has his brother ruined our repeat and what a disgrace. And you made the whole franchise and would they have that metaphor giving the whole franchise a black eye going into the biggest game of the year? They give a different. There's a black cloud over the whole organization. Are they going to be distract? I have not. Now, I can't say that I've been camped out watching ESPN and got my plans revved up for my Super Bowl party tomorrow. So maybe I missed all that. But I don't exactly get the impression that that's been the coverage that this Brett Reed, like what a no good Nick. And this is why we don't give out second chances and uh, talk about uh, just giving out. Uh, I forgot they got one of the, the fancy terms. Uh, nepotism yeah talk about nepotism you know and bringing in these uncouth criminals into the organization and this sort of thing happened I haven't heard that type of commentary I could be told maybe I just missed it maybe they're saving all that for the big game tomorrow but yes and we do have an idiot that says pretty regularly sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy I think that gets said pretty often 
on the broadcast. And even for emphasis, children. He they said one of those children is in the hospital that Brett Reed hit in two. He didn't just hit one car. He hit two cars. They said one of those children is in critical condition. He could have killed two children. In addition to the adults, not that I'm you know minimizing that, but I mean young children, like really young. I think one of them was under uh, the age of six or something. Like killer, man, let's, manslaughter. Like man, come on. Good luck, Chiefs and. Patrick Mahomes. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I hope you all are not doing football uh, watch parties tomorrow. Uh, If you're going to watch the game, maybe you can be at home and just be by yourself if you have to watch the ball game. But certainly no Super Bowl parties. Uh, I think for many, many reasons, it would be best to avoid all of that. Uh, other folks, uh, if you have uh, commentators share, especially if we've uh, missed you, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Oh, hi. Cause listeners and Gus T. Um, yeah, lately in the news, you know, there seems to be more of the same kind of um, law enforcement um, violence against non-white people. You know, maybe it's probably what has been said before, uh, race soldiers. The term race soldier is really, well, you're supposed to actually say suspected race soldier because um, as, as what's been said, it's not really wise to call people names. But uh, there was a story... You know, I don't know if it was in Chicago. There was there was a nine year old and ten year old that were pepper sprayed continuously, and then they were handcuffed um, inside of the police the police um, car. So there seems to be a lot of um, violence directed at very young um, non-white people. So I just wanted to talk about that and. Um, I guess this is the Black History Month time, and um, a lot of the things that are about um, Black history is that Black history is not shouldn't be looked at something as what you celebrate, because as non-white people on the planet, there is really nothing to celebrate until we dismantle the system called the system of white supremacy, racism. And what I've kind of noticed is that. Um, um, the civil rights movement started on the real issues. What started the civil rights movement started from by grassroots people, just regular ordinary people who, who were sick of being killed and beaten up and prevented from being men and, and uh, women. And as you know, um, as now white people, we can't be men or women or fathers because we are subject to an injustice system and an unjust and illegitimate government called the system of racism white supremacy so i think quite a lot of in my opinion some of what the his, the civil rights movement became in terms of black history it, it was kind of hijacked by the system of white supremacy and the people who practice racism who are classified as white and um 
the message for how they did this, the black celebrities, the entertainers, the sports personalities use the civil rights movement as a way to promote their careers. And then, the, and then the movement lost, lost um, focus. A lot of what Mr. Ford talks about um, in terms of non-white people, you need have to have uh, focus and clarity. So, um, you know, instead of teaching black people and encouraging black people to own property and um, own businesses, it was more about eating someone eating someone else's burger, you know, as you know, the cigar, uh, the the the, the so called segregated World War lunch counter scene, as you saw, people wanted to have a meal, but um, they were denied to. But the civil rights movement should be more of people owning owning property, owning businesses, and instead it became about the civil rights movement became about people consuming other people's uh, products instead of products that were owned from black people or black owned businesses. So, in my opinion, the the grassroots people, you know, just ordinary people, were the real stars, and they were overlooked and and ignored. And the, and the celebrity partic- participation, the selfish need for people to promote their careers at the expense of other people became the real focus of what the civil rights movement was. And it astonishes me, it really astonishes me how, how non-white people can overlook the blatantly obvious things that the system of white supremacy does to us. It kills us, it harms us. Um, worldwide, people just pretend and ignore the destruction that the system of white supremacy does to non-white people 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, 365 days out of the year. So um, I guess one example would be Claudette Cliven, and she was actually the real um, Rosa Parks because she was actually, she was a 16-year-old who, an underage black teenager who became pregnant and she didn't want to stand on the bus and she refused to sit down. And that's actually the real Rosa Parks. I don't really want to say that in terms of uh, calling the, the Rosa Parks that we know of as calling her names, but that's just an an example. And um, that's it. Um, replace um, white supremacy with a true system of justice. Thank you very much. And I'll mute my line. Much obliged caller in Canada. Uh, Grassroots hijack. Those are both metaphors. Just being mindful about our metaphors. Clarity is definitely important uh, in terms of having an accurate understanding. What is racism, white supremacy? How does it work? Uh, We can be much more efficient uh, in solving this problem, uh, having accurate understanding and focus about what it is we're doing. What problem are we trying to solve? And I think for a long time, Uh, During the so-called 60s, 50s, now 2010s, there has been lots of confusion about exactly what is the system of racism, white supremacy. What should we be doing to solve this problem? What does it mean to be white? Not really having 
accurate answers to those questions and focus towards resolving those problems that has man plagued us for a long time uh caller at five four two five oh i did want to say the real rosa parks that's a metaphor too uh definitely that's one i would uh and he, i think he recognized it. the caller in canada there would probably be a better way of saying it if i was rosa parks i would for sure have several things to say about that uh the real rosa parks excuse me words are very important caller uh five four two five uh did you have commentary line should be open uh greetings uh gusty renegade and uh peace and blessings to all the listeners i've been a long time uh cows listener since about 2010 uh and I just thank you for all that you do. Um, I wanted to, I've been following the OJ uh, readings that you've been having. And right now I'm in the middle of a book. Me and my son are reading this book called uh, Inside the Robe. Inside the Robe by uh, Catherine N- Mater, or Nader. Sorry, I may be getting her name wrong right now. But it's a, it's a really good book. It's an insight to a judge's perspective behind the bench. And it uh, it sheds a lot of light and, uh, on a lot of confusing topics related to the legal system and the part that we play in. So uh, I just wanted to throw that book out there. It's called Inside the Road. Uh, I think it's like a free PDF online if y'all want to check that out. But... Uh, I'll mute my line. Once again, thank you guys for all that you do. Hmm. We do what we can. The book club, OJ Simpson, a rental James. It has been amazing. The best is yet to come. We haven't even got to the Furman tapes. We haven't got to the closing argument. The gloves don't fit. We haven't got to... (sighs) Looking forward. Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, pretty much every day of 2021 has been unpleasant that little bit right there he said he's reading a book with his son spectacular spectacular reading is more important than watching television and then to be reading books that are constructive about racism, white supremacy with your offspring, Dr. Welsing would have a big smile. So the book Inside the Robe, A Judge's Candid Tale of Criminal Justice in America, Catherine Mader, M-A-D-E-R, Catherine Mader. Hmm, that's kind of sexual. Inside the Robe? Hmm. Hmm. A Judge's Candid Tale. Okay, let's see. A Reflection... Oh, it's a diary with reflections and flashbacks of one year's events, 2016. Hmm. Year of the Donald in the Los Angeles. You said it's, say again. It's extremely insightful. I mean, it, 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 it's a, it's a a perspective that you don't get from, um, from mainstream media in terms of, uh, what goes through a, a judge's, uh, sensibilities in terms of judgments uh what they carry in terms of uh you know baggage to the courtroom 
and how it affects their outcomes and their judgments. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. This is, uh, we did all the, the OJ Simpson LAPD is involved and all of that. So this is the same department. Same. This is the same, uh, court where the Simpson trial, uh, took, uh, right. took place, LA County. Exactly. So. Does she mention the Simpson case in this book? She does. She mentions the Simpson case as well as the, uh, the Grim sleeper case, which is another big case out here. Uh, if you've heard of that one. So yeah, she's uh, she's been working with the L- in LA County for the last 25, 30 years. It's it's great insight. I thought like as a you know kind of like as like a peripheral to your to the OJ reading. It's it's really good. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, we'll have to check that one out. Like uh, so, I said this. You could be you could have a really nice library that deals with the OJ Simpson trial, white authors, non-white authors, newer books, older books, like really rich reading experience about the system. And you'll, you'll learn, look at this learning about the law and things like I would not have even been as interested to go through and you can learn quite a bit, learn about jury sequestration, lots of things. Uh, Let's see. This is July 19. I'm just picking a day here where she's talking about, uh, the Simpson trial. Let's see what she says. She says half the timestamp. So July 19, 2016, I think president or he wasn't. So at that time he had captured the Republican nomination, I think, or he was very close to it. I think he had taken it by the middle of July. They had already, they had just had days before July 19. They had the shooting in Texas. Uh, Michael Xavier Johnson shot those officers uh they had alton sterling philando castile had just happened a few days before president obama had come out and talk about that so it was lots of very similar things happening july 2016 so on the 19th she writes driving to work this morning i heard my name on the radio i was listening to the podcast reasonable doubt with guest christopher dardner darden the prosecutor in the oj simpson trial mark Garagos, the defense attorney in the Scott Peterson trial, and comedian Adam Adam Carolla, they were discussing the volatile subject of prosecuting police officers for on-duty shootings in Los Angeles. One of the attorneys mentioned that when Kathy Mater was a prosecutor, she prosecuted an LAPD officer for killing a tow truck tow truck driver. I described portions of the two trials the trial and retrial on January 15 of this diary. At the time I was in a unit in the district attorney's office that prosecuted police officers and public officials. Difficult issues arise when prosecuting police officers. It's strange with all of the police shootings in the news. I forgot about my intimate experience involving the prosecution of a Caucasian police officer for killing an African-American tow truck, tow truck driver. This incident took up two years of my life. It doesn't register often in my memory bank, perhaps because I felt unsatisfied with the result. 
The news today fully covers the difficulty of convicting police officers for shootings that happen on duty. Jurors want to support police officers. The defense always argues that it's not fair to judge police officers using hindsight for decisions that were made in a split second during the height of excitement and danger. We are asking a lot of police officers. We are also trusting them with serving and protecting the public with proper training. I'll stop there. It looks like she mentions Mr. Simpson. Uh, oh, she talks about the club demonstration. Woo, man, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Now, that's from the closing argument, but I mean, he's referencing he's referencing the gloves and many things else, much like shedding light on it. That is a metaphor. If it doesn't fit, that also is a metaphor. He is talking about the gloves. That's one component, but it becomes much broader to be a metaphor for the entirety of the case against O.J. Simpson. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. But to get to all that, the gloves got to get to the gloves. That is Thursday. I'm so excited. Uh, Let's see. Other folks we missed totally. Thomas in New York. Might need some time to get his thoughts together. While we're, uh, we'll get here from Thomas in New York, I reckon. Oh, there he is. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, Gus. I was in the, I was trying to get out of the crowded, loud room. Um, good evening to everyone. Um, great show. Um, rest in peace to Leon Spinks. He made his transition. I love the clip that you played on John Cheney. Um, he went after racist John Calipari. You know, I hate, um, always hated these, um, it would be like these white Italian last name coaches dressed very, very, you know, Armani-ish, you know, um, uh, in Armani suits, very, very stylish dressed and do a great job recruiting black players, you know, and he was one of them. And I always, you know, despised him and I thought he was a terrible coach, you know, not John Cheney, I'm talking about John Calipari. <clears throat> Cal Rittenhouse, man, um, he was one of the highlights of last year to me, you know, a young white guy shooting down other white people. Uh, we need more of that. Um, no outcry from white people about him hiding out. I think because the white people he gunned down by most white people would be assumed as being off cold walking around Black Lives Matter and stuff, you know. Um, I could see that being the reason why it's no big outcry. Uh, and that kind of reminded me of Dylan Roof, even though totally different circumstances, but they took him to Burger King. You know, they gave him um they gave him some um some white power privileges. <clears throat> when I worked at the hospital in the ghetto no less, I felt that lady's pain when I heard the clip. Substandard care is built into the hospital business plans if they're in the black area. Um, And they happen to be the world's best trauma centers. Um, And that's their focus, trauma. um, But servicing um, illegal citizens, um, providing health and wellness services, that's not what they have money for. You know, when I worked at the hospital, 
we had 91,000 more people coming to the emergency room than the emergency room was built for. They had, uh, they were in the plans of um, extending the emergency room further along the outside of the hospital um, before um, I, I didn't work there anymore. So it was just like a, it was a terrible situation. Um, and if you have money, if you're black, I would advise you, unless you're in a traumatic, you know, uh, you've been shot, car accident, you know, you go to that hospital. If you have um, regular pain, try to get outside of the black area and go to a hospital that's more geared toward helping people, not trauma. Um, that would be my advice. Um, but the hospital and the court, the two most racist places I've worked, you talk about having black people in the most compromising positions, like, man, you know, somebody, some white man with the power to affect your life, you know. Um, last thing I wanted to say, and I thought this was kind of interesting, um, China, very upset with Canada. Um, apparently, Canada is receiving thousands of Chinese nationals, for whatever reason, from China's Wuhan region. Um, a Canadian diplomat created T-shirts with the Wu-Tang Clan logo. And, and where we say Wu-Tang, it says Wuhan. And when China saw these T-shirts um, with the Wu-Tang symbol, they saw it as offensive, and they wanted the Canadian diplomats to apologize. China felt like the Wu-Tang W was a bat, and the word Wuhan running through that W is... Um, confirming that they had something to do with the origins of the coronavirus. Um, um, Canada, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's just real strange, you know. Um, on another note, on the same week, um, Joe Biden passes an executive order. Man, did he pass a lot of executive orders. Man, uh, about racism, racism against Chinese Americans, um, which I, I just don't see that. You know, I've Never seen, well, I mean, if, if we classify racism about what, what happens to us, I don't see the, uh, Chinese people being mistreated <laughs> in ways where they could outcry racism in America. Um, but I'll be my line. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. I think they've had a few reports, at least saying since the Rona, so-called Asian people have been getting a lot of mistreatment, blame, attacks in the street. They've had a number of reports in the Seattle Times saying that. Matter of fact, the front page of the Seattle Times, they were talking about racism in Therona today, but neither here nor there. I, I would be surprised or I'd be more uh, inclined to look up and, and really take notice if Mr. Biden signed some sort of executive order about, you know, black people specifically being abused and terrorized and going to do something about that specifically, but I don't think that's been in the rash of executive orders that he has signed in the first uh, few days or so. Uh, I was trying to find the segment in medical apartheid where she has the anecdote where it's a um, black male and it's, pretty similar where he was having a medical issue and they, ah, oh, you're making it up. Get out of here. Wasting our time. They didn't even give him ibuprofen. Just told him to get out. You're making it all up. And then he ended up dying and they found out, oh man, he was not making it up. We were 
practicing racism against him. Very kind. That's that among many other points in the book, but that specifically was one of the most poignant. I think I mentioned it. Uh, we were speaking to Rob in California most recently. Uh, number again is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, the folks we missed totally uh, who have a hand up comments, suggestions, they want to make sure they get in. Didn't miss anybody completely. Grant, any other? Oh, my goodness. Leon Spinks. Man, it's been an ugly. He died at 67. Like he was not ancient history. Uh, like he's not Muhammad Ali's age. 67. Black male privilege. 67. Disgrace. That's medical apartheid. That's why I said like boxing. That needs to be done away with like totally. Like nothing bad to say about any black person who participated in boxing. Uh, victims of racism. Like what have you. But I mean you evolve you let the Roman Colosseum go you do not sit out and cheer and let's toss you know a black person and watch the lion chase him around and chew on him like no that is not humane I am not going to pay money to watch one human being pummel another human being Uh, so then their brain computer Dr. Welsing is not even working properly when they're 50 years old end up dying at 67 or your quality of life is greatly diminished. You can't even talk at 67. All of that totally disgraceful. In my view, all of that is the culture of white supremacy. Uh, It would be absurd in my view to be in a system of justice, to have that promoted as entertainment. I'm going to beat somebody senseless. You won't even recognize your grandchildren at 67. Oh, it'll be great though have photographs of all the people that you knocked out and beat on total discredit the football tomorrow too we can go give make that a whole holiday put that on Sunday like it's the religion we can watch give everybody brain damage cheer about that give a big uh, polished ball trophy phallic symbol to a white man at the end of the game disgraceful all of it all of white people's ball games and athletic competitions dr welsing talked about boxing uh, in the ball games in the isis papers but leon spinks passed at 67 i think charles barkley victim of racism was just talking about going to watch him fight uh mike tyson and pitiful display there too but uh yeah leon spinks victim of racism boxing football hopefully all of that will be done away with and properly labeled as white supremacy culture beastly someday soon other folks have commentary that they wanted to share uh oh, hang let's see Irie in Louisiana did you have commentary they they mentioned her area specifically Louisiana and saying oh this is one of the areas not going to be easy for black people to get vaccines in Louisiana uh, and they're getting ready for Mardi Gras down there too I think uh, Irie yes ma'am uh, yeah, I was just listening. Um, I came late and I didn't hear the headlines, but um, there's no uh, Mardi Gras per se, like uh, carnival season with the 
parades and, and stuff, and people are so desperate to experience Mardi Gras that um, a lot of the people that participate in the parades, the white people, are decorating their homes to look like floats. Um, a waste of resources and time, if you ask me. But um, I was just listening. Um, uh, just not a Thomas in New York, and um, thinking about what he said about China, and uh, it made me um, think of something I was pondering on a couple days ago um, in regard to China having uh, like the, the the tight, tightly ran social. Um, situations where you can't leave unless you scan this and that. You have social credit um, as well. And then I'm, I um, saw an email in my in my inbox about investing, like uh, early investment in uh, social credit companies where they're saying basically all the information that you've disseminated on the internet and have used like on Facebook or this or that can all be um, basically put into this uh, this reservoir, I suppose, as a metaphor, but this place that, that holds it all and quantifies it and allows you to do and get things based on that quantification of that social credit. And I say, you know, that's just a perfect way of transitioning uh, white supremacy from the white people doing it to, you know, well, they can then say, well, it's your social credit. Your social credit wasn't enough or you, you know, you're just not rated high enough or you can't have this or you can't have that. Um, and I've been trying to tell uh, people, my son, like, uh, because he's a young person and he doesn't quite understand and other people about it, like um, a friend of mine, we were talking, and she was like, well, what, what do you think is going on? I said, um, Mr. Fuller talks about the four stages of uh, white supremacy, um, and, I, and I told her what they were, and I'm sure you all know. And I was just saying, you know, you can go back and forth between the stages as necessary. I said, well, we're back to refinement right now and, and expansion, obviously, but they have to refine as they expand because they can't they can't maintain the status quo of you know just out outwork white people racism it has to be it has to be redefined as covert and, um I'm not sure that we're really wrapping our heads around uh this phenomenon when it starts to take place, you know that in uh, the whole transition away from money in a way in a way. And I thought about this. I was like, now this is interesting. The Federal Reserve is going to be printing out a billion dollars a day for the United States government to use. But none of us are going to be getting like any bigger stimuluses or, or help. They can't justify the money that they've given the businesses with a $10 billion a day budget. You can't even justify the, the, the Pentagon with that uh, for the most part, but you can you can justify it when if you think about it, and it's me speculating that the government is just using this money for itself to keep itself operating, and that's it. It's at a state of pure 
self-survival. And then the rest of us are just going to be, we're just left to figure it out. And this social credit is going to be a part of it and transitioning into this cryptocurrency, you know, these different types of so many, but, you know, it's terrible and it's sad because quality of life is just going to decline even further. Um, I just wanted to add that real quick. And, uh, all righty, thank you. Y'all have a good night. Much obliged, uh, Irie in Louisiana. It absolutely is uh, a lot to process in terms of the finances of all of this and exactly what they'll try to do to either help people or what excuses they will give for why they do not offer any assistance uh, all the while helping out lots of white owned businesses uh, in the meanwhile. Uh, I guess she said that they're not doing Mardi Gras, not at least the conventional crowds and drunken debauchery and all, but the white residents in Louisiana are making their houses look like floats. Uh, the caller at nine zero two nine. If you had commentary, you should be with us, sir. Uh, greetings, uh, Gus, and callers and listeners. Um, just a little bit of commentary at the end. I just uh, I really appreciate the John Cheney um, uh, segment. He really put things in perspective, um, and. I, I always wondered why I, I was watching college sports quite often and, and watched Temple University. And I always wondered why the, the, the announcers and a lot of other speakers, when they spoke about him, predominantly these people were white, would speak about him in a negative context. And I can never figure out why. And it always was portrayed like he was this angry black man. Um, then understanding how he approached other people that were, quote-unquote, doing unjust things, mainly white people, it was very noticeable um, <laughs> why he was being portrayed that way. Uh, the other thing is the um, schooling. It's, it's been a very difficult uh, pros- you know, very difficult thing right now. I'm trying to figure out exactly if I'm going to allow my son to go back to school for maybe, maybe twice a week. He um, definitely has spoken up and said that he's not feeling comfortable being at home anymore, a little bit more on the depression side. It's affecting him more socially um, than anything else, uh, despite how many things we may do together, cooking, um, bike riding, and anything of the sort. Uh, so I'm, it's, a, it's a tough thing to contemplate, but I'm, I may have to do that. Uh, and, and maybe I can get him on the show for Wednesday, and he could probably speak to that to some degree. Um, the other aspect in regards to the, the racial terror that's going to be coming sooner or later in regards to, well, that is consistent that we've been seeing um, from white supremacy and that the Justice Department and all these other agencies, FBI, CIA, are fully aware of. And I don't see any of that changing because all the people that are causing or doing these actions are all intertwined with those agencies one way or another, whether by blood relative or financial, some kind of connection. I just don't see white people um, altering or changing that relationship. I see that staying the same. Um, that's just about it for me, and uh, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Hmm. Would love it for Wednesday if your uh, 
son would like to share uh, with us the good, the bad of the past uh, 12 months. Would love it if Wednesday works. We'll go for uh, Wednesday. I think Ari, I mentioned, I don't know if she heard it when I mentioned it earlier, but yeah, if Wednesday works for folks, I'll send out uh, an email uh, within the next 24 hours. My email is until justice at gmail.com. Uh, so if we have uh, attempted parents or they don't even have to be your offspring per se, if they're, like I said, nieces, nephews, cousins, whatever it is, you know them, neighbors. Uh, but, you know, do you think they want to participate if they're willing, able? We'll see if we can do it for Wednesday. If this Wednesday doesn't work for everyone, we'll see if we can find a, a mutually acceptable date for February. And we'll get younger folks on and discuss how the past 12 months, uh, what a journey it has been academically. Looking forward to it until justice at gmail.com. Again, that is my uh, email address. That's, that's why I said the social impact, not being able to see my friends or see your friends and, and do things like, man, I cannot imagine like just going to hang out with dad and ride bikes or whatever. I mean, I guess, but that is not quite the same. And then for a year, oof. Uh, any other comments? Folks want to make sure that they get in before we wrap things up. Caller in Florida, yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. thank you very much. Uh, I forgot to mention. Um, has anyone heard about this uh, this um, white woman that they're also calling a conspiracy theorist, Marjorie Taylor Greene from out of Georgia, and she's been wearing these um, face masks and Trump one and all other kinds of, I guess, what they would call political messages. And she's been defiant at one point saying, I'm not going to apologize. And uh, she had an image with her holding a firearm with uh, some non-white females on the other side, like in a, I guess, grayscale coloring, saying that squad's worst nightmare. The people, you know, the females, they call it the squad. And uh, I guess earlier in the week she was taken off from her position, I guess, in the House, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives or whatnot. Um, and I think she was on uh, some reports recently saying that, oh, well, everything leading up to a few days ago, you know, that doesn't really represent me and um, being very skillfully racist. I don't know, have you uh, seen any of the reports on, on the uh, racist suspect white woman, Gus? I have seen a few of them uh, where they had the proceedings this week. They removed her uh, from uh, the committees. I don't know the exact committees that she was on, but they voted to remove her from the uh, committees. I think it was another person who was upset. I think she moved her office away from her uh, representative Bush, I think as a black female victim. Uh, but I saw some of the reports. I don't think she has resigned. I think she's still hanging out in Congress. I don't think she's going to be leaving anytime soon. And yeah, they'll make I, at least my suspicion. They'll make a, a minor spectacle of her for a time being. And then we'll move along. But yeah, we'll have to see. I did see some of that this week. Um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm still with it. Would, they would have to show me. I don't. Do you think this qualifies as like they're holding her accountable? They, she got removed from these chairs and what have you. She's been publicly disgraced uh, and what have you for her conduct. Do you think this is, you know, acceptably holding a white person accountable for their misdeeds? I don't. I really don't. <laughs> I agree. I just think that um, they they're trying to make it seem like that's what it is to make it look like this is what the uh, current description of what a racist or white supremacist is. But they like to use the term conspiracy. They, they kept calling her conspiracy theorists uh, and right winger or whatever which is very confusing. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like they are going to really punish her or really remove her from her position. And she still looks to be behaving in a very defiant manner. So uh, I'm going to continue to watch and see how they treat her as well, which I wouldn't be surprised if she continues to uh, be treated like a white person, of course. And that's all I have. Uh, Marjorie Taylor, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She had, they have a picture of her from this week with her uh, face mask on that says censored victim of racism. Marjorie Greene. That's that right there says a lot to even be coming out in public under these circumstances. And it's sounding like she's, doing the white victim woe is me just what sound like mark Furman. oh they're just me and my troubles to just mistreat me won't let me say anything talk bad about me yes white women do it better uh did guess we last comment or folks satisfied that to be like 30 seconds or less folks satisfied are we good uh gus could i add something 30 seconds or less. Okay, sir. Um, I just want to make a point about um, the person from uh, Louisiana made a point about being in refinement. I'm just astonished of how the system of white supremacy racism can influence our behavior in ways that we don't really understand and how it could make us do things that we wouldn't usually do. And it's, 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 it's just so powerful, this system really is. But I still think codification and um, having constructive um, intentions and knowing what we want and how we plan to do what we want and think about the constructive, non-constructive, I think that could still help us to become um, universal people. And I think we should just keep on working on that. Thank you kindly, victim in Canada. So the broadcast with the younger folks should be Wednesday, I think. Now, obviously, coordinating, we will have to see, but we will attempt for Wednesday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Asterisk, if it seems that, you know, that's not going to be feasible uh, for a number of folks, then we'll look for a more convenient date and time, but we'll see if Wednesday works. We'll see if we can get some younger folks. Cause I think that's super important. It's been oof, traumatic in many ways for many people all over the year, uh, all over the world. Certainly 
black children have felt many things over the past year. We should take some time to uh, hear what they have to say. Much obliged for the folks participating this evening. Hope it's worthy of your time and energy. Uh, should be posted Black Talk Radio Network, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. Hopefully everything will be fixed with SoundCloud soon and it'll be there too. Uh, but if you have any questions or difficulties, drop an email until justice at gmail dot com. That said, I can repeat sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. With everything that's happening right now, I think it would behoove us to have a high functioning brain computer. We will need new concepts, new strategies to solve the problem. In addition to being sober, I say we should hunker down, stay in the house if we can. If you have to go out, be alert. Kyle Rittenhouse, his whereabouts remain unknown. Many reasons when we go out and about really be vigilant. If you see some white people, they're being loud. I don't care what reason they're being hostile and rowdy. You should be thinking these folks could be armed. These folks, in fact, could have a whole cadre of armed whites with them. Prepared, codified to do some violence. If you did not leave your residence ready to die ready to kill you should exit quickly no verbal confrontations again you don't know if these folks are armed things can escalate quickly if you are going to go out as I said something serious doing whatever you have to do we are sober driver or passenger you are buckled if you are driving you are not on the cell phone Uh, again we need to be vigilant too we're trying to minimize contact with the race soldiers of the known universe the Mark Furmans of the world Uh, just doing the small things sober not on the cell phone buckled up just the little things that we can control as victims of white supremacy All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling that is one small thing that we can do that would have a huge impact in my view to minimize some of that conflict with other black people victims of racism it's in the 10 stops no name calling condolences to Mr. Leon Spinks and his family. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.